Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Booster Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hitchick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Hello, and welcome to the 10th episode of Who's Who in the DC Universe, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag. Along with me, as always, is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. And, you know, I, Shag, I'm confused by the whole thing of, like, when you say it's all downhill from here, because what? when you – well, wait, hold on. That's what I'm getting That's what I'm getting at. Because if you say – like, traditionally, when you say it's all downhill from here, most people think that means bad, right? Okay. But at the same time, going downhill is easier. So yes. wouldn't downhill also be better too? And my point is, to me, all the who's who's are going to be downhill in a good way because I got past the Legion issue. <laughs> the rest of them are going to be relatively easy in comparison. So in a good way, it's all downhill from here for me. When did I say it was downhill from here? <laughs> you didn't. I'm saying I'm trying to oh, figure out. I'm I, saying to pay attention. It's I'm hard saying, when you're I, Yeah, I know. I'm saying I wanted to say it's all downhill from here, but of I course, see. when people hear that, they're like, "What are you talking about? These are good." No, I'm saying it's going to be easier because I managed to get through the last issue, which had <laughs> 77 Legion entries. This was a really big buildup to a joke that wasn't that funny if people were paying attention last month. So there, that's what that was. Okay, perfect, wonderful. Your mileage may vary, everybody. I thought it was very funny. But also, <laughs> stay tuned for more Laura Gemser talk. It's going to be very exciting. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Uh, if anyone's starting new with this episode, I sincerely apologize. Don't do that. Don't do not do that. I'm telling you now. If you're, this is your first episode, stop listening. Go back. Hey, when we get to the feedback, we're going to find out some people do just start randomly in the middle. And that's okay. And we're glad to have you if you are new, folks. If this is your first episode, don't listen to this one. Wait and start with who's who and impact when we get to that. Oh, my. Maybe they want to hear about the Tim Drake Robin, you know? Maybe that's important to him because Tim Drake is – and I will fight anyone on this, the best Robin. Yeah, he's All better right. than Dick Grayson. He is. So, as Robin. Dick Grayson is the best Nightwing, though. All right, so, anyway, we are here to cover Who's Who in the DC Universe number 10, which came out, uh, well, a cover dated June 1991, folks. This is, of course, our coverage of the massive Who's Who series. We started with the original uh, floppies, if you will, of Who's Who. We moved into the updates. Now we're into the loose leaf binders. Oh, my gosh. And this is a 16-issue miniseries, normally retailed for $4.95, and in $1991, you could buy a hell of a lot of uh, Big League Chew with that, let me just say. So you had to choose between those two things. And, of course, it's loosely format with 24 entries per, uh, per issue. So, uh, and, and you know, the, the interesting thing about this, like, you know, as I said, Tim Drake's on the cover of this one. So they really, really were focusing on the DC universe that was current at that time. And you'll see that in a lot of these entries. I mean, it's really, this one in particular, it's very interesting to see how they were trying to take a slice of almost this month in DC history. So it's, it, it's very timely. Now, 
Before we get too much into the entries and we talk about that and we talk about the wonderful categories that Rob loves, we should probably take a second to thank our sponsor. <laughs> Folks, this episode of the Who's Who podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off for free shipping for $50, uh, for orders of $50 or more. What did you bring this time, Rob? Based on a listing in this very book, uh, I am recommending Swamp Thing, the Bronze Age Omnibus oh, Trade Paperback Volume 1, which collects the classic uh, star <laughs> star. What am I saying? Swamp Thing stories from House of Secrets number 92 and Swamp Thing numbers 1 through 13 by unfortunately both uh, the late greats, uh, Len mm-hmm. Wein and Bernie Wrightson. This is Swamp Thing uh, meeting Anton Arcane, Abigail Arcane, the Patrick Man, the Unmen, plus a guest appearance by Batman, which is always uh, very interesting. It's 304 pages. Mm. Uh, the normal price is twenty four ninety nine. In stock trade price is $14.49. That is 42% off. Anybody listening to this knows you know, these are some of the greatest comics ever done. But if you don't have these collected, this is a great way to get it because it has all the issues by those with the original creators, all between two covers. Can't beat it. That's a heck of a great price for that many issues, too. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and you know what this makes me want to say? Swamp thing. You fight everything evil. Anyway. um, That's why why that show got canceled because they didn't use that theme. They should have done that. You bite your tongue, sir. You bite your tongue because we're going to talk about that show when we get to Patchwork Man, okay? All right. So I brought Batman the Cape Crusader trade paperback volume two because apparently I'm going through a Batman phase. And this collects Batman number Batman. <laughs> Everyone gets over a Batman phase too, by the way, if they grow up. Uh, Batman number 432 through 439, 443 to 444. That's just numbers, guys. That's just in, in an annual, a bunch of numbers. Basically, what you're going to get out of this is Batman year three, which I love, and the many deaths of Batman. Now, it does not include the lonely place of dying. Uh, don't believe what's in the solicitation. It says it's in there. It's not. But uh, why I picked this is because uh, Batman Year 3 is actually the very first appearance of Tim Drake as a little, little kid. He's like three years old in a flashback. So it is technically the first appearance of Tim Drake. And uh, it's written uh, by Marv Wolfman and John Byrne, art by Jim Aparo. Mm. Cover by Michael Bayer. It is 303 pages, full color, of course. Normally retails for $29.99. You can get it for 42% off, so only $17.39. And I, again, I simply adore the Batman Year 3 story. You know, there's, there's lots of arguments to be had about whether it's in canon or not anymore. It's it's how Dick Grayson becomes Robin. And then Dick Grayson as an adult dealing with Zuko and uh, the, the criminal Zuko is responsible for his parents' murder. And it's uh, and, and I love it. Absolutely adore it. So, anyway, for these and all of your trade paperback needs, please visit at instocktrades.com. Now, uh, we're going to get into who's who in just a minute here, but folks, would you please go out on the social medias, let people know you're watching, you're, you're uh, interested in the show or you're promoting it and let, you know, and talking about it and what fun listening to it, but use our hashtag pound FW podcast or tag us uh, at FW Podcast as well, which would be great. And we want this community to grow, so please give us your feedback. And we will include some of these images on our website. And Rob, you want to tell people where to find that image gallery? That is fireandwaterpodcast.com. Very good. You know, he's almost like a trained monkey. He's got that down so well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no problem. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lover and a giver. So uh, as we get into this, we're going to talk about these entries. And what you get is on the front side, you get a full page of art, like a big old pinup, and you get a logo and all that. And on the back side is the text with uh, some inset images and tells you, like, you know, the personal data, height, weight, you know, history, powers, all that kind of jazz. Now, each sheet, and here's the best part, each sheet is labeled with a color border, which identifies how you might want to catalog, catalog these entries. Because you can get a three-ring binder, and you can put these in any order if you want. If you want 
all the Legion entries in one binder just to go to Rob's house and have him sign it, you can do that. And you do it by color. So red is hero, black is villain, blue is sporting cast, etc., etc. And I'll, I'll, I'll mention each one as we go. And uh, we, it's super fun. I love this categorization. And we've heard from you guys at home. If you haven't written in and told us how you categorize your binders, please leave that in the comments because I love to watch Rob suffer. So that would be fan-damn-tastic. We would love that. Now, as we go, we will describe what the entry looks like because we don't want you to have these binders in front of you. It is very, very – I find, personally, it is very, very difficult to be in the drive through at Dairy Queen, eating your dip cone, and flipping through binders at the same time. I don't know if you've had that experience or not. It didn't go well for me. So I just want to save people at home that heartbreak. <laughs> okay. I'm just letting you do your bits. I'm just letting it, <laughs> letting it run. <laughs> it's like one of those little toy cars. You pull the, the zip string like – Eventually, eventually it'll just wind itself out. Like eventually, tornado, the caffeine yeah. wears off and it stops. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Who's Who number 10 is cover dated June 1991, as I said, but it was on the shelves April 23rd, 1991. And um, the cover is, in fact, Tim Drake, but we will save the discussion for later. Although I do want to point out, Rob, take a good look at this Tim Drake drawing, right? And then when we get to the issue, you will notice something that you pointed out to me when we did Hawkman that I never noticed. Oh, okay. I already know it's what the, that is then. Okay. The coloring, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, the coloring is very different on the cover versus the actual Tim Drake entry. So the coloring here is actually pretty flat and pretty boring. So uh, it gets more interesting on the inside. So why don't we get in the inside? And, Rob, this is your issue. I know you're excited. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who's who number 10? All right, let's get started. Uh, on the inside cover, of course, is the letters page. Uh, there is a uh, opening letter by someone named T. Farragine. Uh, he asks a couple of random questions. We'll go right to the back cover because we've been doing that. There's some uh, another letter by someone named Chris Mack. And then there is a letter by uh, some dork named Chris Franklin from <laughs> Cynthiana, Kentucky. Uh, no, of course I'm kidding. He's not a dork. Uh, Wait, he's not? Actually, no, he is, really. Uh, but no, yeah, Chris Franklin, this is amazing. This is like going back in time, yes. jumping into Rip Hunter's time bubble and, and going back and meeting a member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network before we ever knew him. Wave Rider. Uh, pretty not, amazing. Not what? Wave Rider, because that's more appropriate for this issue, but yes. Oh, that's true. I should have said yeah, I'm old school. But anyway, uh, yeah, and then he writes a very nice letter, and he asks about doing a – a who's who in JLA, which uh, which Michael Yuri actually says is not a bad idea. So there you go. Very excited. But I, this had to be very exciting for Chris to get his letter printed in who's who. Like that is just pretty amazing. Well, it's funny. Towards the end, he gets cutesy and he sort of starts channeling his inner snapper car. Yes. Uh, and one of the things I like he says is, oh, hip hoosters. Meaning, referring to the people who are interested in who's who. So, you know, I got to ask Rob. Let's put it out there in the etherverse. There is this a term we should we should steal and use for people listening to this podcast? Are they hip hoosters? It's a little late to come up with a catchphrase for the audience, <laughs> considering we are now in probably the the final, you know, what fifth of the show at this I point. I heard we're the downhill slopes, is what yeah, I heard. So. Yeah, that's right. So I don't know. I mean, we'll leave it up to the audience. Maybe if you guys all want to be called hoosters, we can do that. I would be alright with hoosters. that. Hip I'm not going to do that part. I'm just, I'm just like <laughs> hoosters. That's although, of course, that might confuse people with Doctor Who or something. I don't Whoa. know. Idea. I don't know how it all works. Yeah, well, so. it, it was especially exciting to see Chris's letter in here. Yes. I thought it was absolutely phenomenal. We knew it was coming because Chris has been saying for several months now he right. was sure we were going to, quote, I think, quote, eviscerate him, I think is what he said probably. Yeah. No, uh, of course for this not. Letter. I would never do that to Chris. 
I would. T- I totally would. Except the letter's not bad, Chris. I mean, you really did a nice job. You you didn't go all pedantic uh, pedantic fanboy on it. So you 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 did a good job. So please I'm very... send me a corrected copy of number nine, <laughs> and I want it hand delivered by Jeanette Cod, even though she doesn't work for the company anymore. No, he doesn't do any of it. So he's he's very reasonable suggestions, and he's very he talks big about Batman artists. I mean, he compliments yeah. Jim Aparo, Norm Brayfogel, Neil Adams, Marshall Rogers. I mean, you know, he's he, he's sort of like it's interesting. Like he. He's this letter is like it's the Chris Franklin you know. Yeah, yeah, pretty really much. Cool. It's he's laying out the framework for what would become Batman Nightcast right here. Yeah, exactly. Well, whenever if that show ever comes back, but I I, I think it's gone. Uh, <laughs> now stepping away from Chris's letter for a second, there's a few other things in the letters page I want to mention. There is someone in here requesting Todd McFarlane to do the Firestorm entry, which was a, a big surprise for me. Now uh, Todd did. Uh, do Firestorm once for in, in the in Pages of Invasion, if I remember correctly, which was pretty cool. And then uh, the sad thing is Michael Yuri does say that Who's Who in the Golden Age is not happening. Mm. He's been talking about it, hinting about it in letters pages for months now. And here he finally says Who's in the Golden Age is not going to happen. But he teases there is going to be some other two-issue Who's Who that would surprise people. I can only assume he's talking about impact at this point. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, surprise is the word I guess you would use for that. Yeah, right? so, yep. But that's all I had on the letters pages. All right. Well, I said, once you have a letter from Chris Franklin, I, you know, what else is there left to talk about? So exactly. it's very exciting. So, exactly. uh, okay. Well, the first entry is uh, a fan favorite, Angel and the Ape. Uh, you're laughing, but I meant that in kind of like a night. You know, this is kind of a gimme a little bit. Now, obviously, uh, at the time, Angel and Ape had just appeared in a miniseries. So that's well, why. They were currently appearing, actually. Well, what did I just say? We well, said had. I, and anyway. Oh, I, for God's sakes. Boy, that's a pedantic change. No, I was just, it was still in the shelves is all I'm saying. Oh, right. right. Oh, my God. Can we just say the thing is porn? The, the entry is pornographic. Can it we just is, get that is, out there? It is very saucy for a who's who listing. It is, it is a shot of the ape uh, drawing Angel as he did. He's literally drawing the who's who listing, as we see, because it was on his artboard. And we see the page up and says who's, who's who. And there's Angel, and she is posing topless. Uh, wearing a thong. And so this is certainly the most nudity in any who's who listing. I don't think there's any nudity in even later listings after this. I think this is it. Um, but so, yeah, it's – and no, it was drawn by um, uh, Phil Foglio and inked by Ty Templeton. So it has a kind of cartoony style and so it's you know a little less saucy than maybe if someone else had drawn it. But nevertheless, for it being the first listing in the book, it's, a, it's an eye-opener, certainly. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Well, uh, Phil Foglio at this point was already known for his Xenophile comic, which is Triple X, XXX Xenophile, which is a, it's a pornographic uh, comic, but it was done in such a cartoony sort of fun way. It was, it was supposed to be a little easier to take, but, um, this entry really bothers me a lot. Like, okay, first of all, I'll get it out there. Yes, she's smoking hot. Absolutely. Phil Foglio can draw people fantastically and she's naked says so yes but it's so sexist it's just really really disturbing to me I, I think it's inappropriate to be in this comic and it bothers the heck out of me hmm. okay. so which is it was just surprising now do you want to talk about their history at all and where they come from and all that well i mean uh, yeah well okay i mean it talks about that uh he says, 16 years ago in Africa, Professor Theo O'Day and young daughter Angel discovered an immature talking gorilla with a yen to travel. Upon returning to the United States, the gorilla took the name Sam Simeon. It was adopted into the over-unusual O'Day household. And that's the story that was told in their debut appearance, which was, was, was Showcase. 
uh, uh, showcase number 77. Here, it's interesting. It's They list the book as Showcase Presents number 77. I don't remember mm. the book ever being called that. It was just called Showcase. Okay. Uh, and uh, it mentions Sam Simeon's relatives, and he is the grandson of Gorilla Grodd. Right. Uh, which, of course, he is, because in, in, in all comic books, all characters with the same last names are related, and all apes are related as well. Yes. They can't just have, you know, like that. So, uh, and then it said it gets into, talks about the, their, their history, and then it gets into some of the stuff that happened in the miniseries. Now, I read the miniseries at the time, I, 20, 30 years ago. I don't remember what happened since. Uh, but it talks about that he became a successful comic book artist for DZ Comics and stuff like that. Uh, and, and then it gets into their powers and weapons. And there's some insets. And one of the insets is them meeting at a young age. And you see that Angel's looking very, very childlike. And there's a Sam there looking like a King Kong and stuff like that. So it's – I I don't know. I don't think it's a – I don't know if it's sexist exactly. It's certainly cheesecake, but that's not inherently sexist necessarily. Well, the the other piece of the drawing is so Rob described. Uh, Ape is drawing her right. By the way, the Who's Who board also has Yuri, Michael Yuri's name on it, which I find funny. But so she's posing topless with her back to us. But she has just shot uh, a room full of apparently bad guys. Like she has just shot down all these different folks that uh, and probably killed all these people who were bad guys. And Ape's actually saying, you know, if you keep moving, I'm never going to get this done. And so that's the funny gag of it. And one of the bits I like is you actually see Wolverine's claws as if she's killed Wolverine as one of the mm-hmm. people she killed. So that, that's kind of the fun part of it. Now, the nice thing about this is, I, I, the bo- again, the drawing bothers me. It feels like it's seriously exploitative. But on the backside, they really do play her up. They talk about her intelligence, all these languages she speaks. I mean, she's really, really smart. Ironically, they also identify her sister is Dumb Bunny. So it's almost like they uh, all the brains went to her and not to her one sister. One step up, two steps back. Right, exactly. So uh, there, there's there's... This concept just never did much for me, I guess is what it boils down to. And uh, the only place I've ever really come across where Angel and Ape did anything for me was in Showcase number 100, which is essentially the the greatest Crisis on Infinite Earth story before Crisis on Infinite Earth happened, right. where everybody who ever appeared in Showcase was there. And in the end, it comes down to this big dramatic – uh, sort of crawl, if you will, like a big uh, dramatic moment. Anyway, Lois Lane and Angel are the two people who save the day. They're they're both like right, so right. they're being uh, radiated with radiation, and they're like crawling to get there, and they persevere and they win the day. And that's the only place that it's really ever resonated for me personally. It's it's a very silly concept, and that's the, the showcase, and especially the later issues, were doing a lot of humor stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, and they were trying different things, but I. Yeah, this isn't like my favorite thing, but I, I, I liked that they got a listing. I mean, again, they were current because they had, did have a miniseries going on. Yep. Uh, so I don't know. I think it's 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 just nice because it's you know they're they're out of they're like out of time characters, and I kind of like that they gave them a page. So yeah, I don't mean to be such a stick in the mud guy, especially with like, like a smoking hot naked lady. You think I'd be like more on board with this, right? But no, it's and artistically, I mean, Foglio and Ty Templeton together, they're gorgeous together. They're a wonderful pairing. Artistically rendered, it's super fun and cartoony. I just assume subject matter was bothering me. Now, it's written um, – Phil Fogler also wrote the text because he was right. obviously doing the miniseries as well. The um, the border, of course, is red for heroes, and you've talked about all their pepper powers and things like that. Uh, at this point, Angel and Ape number four was on the shelf, so the miniseries was just finishing up. And if you want more, I'd hear on this uh, on these folks. Again, the best place I could recommend is related to Showcase number 100. Over on the Pop Culture Affidavit podcast, Tom Panarisa and I discussed Showcase 100 uh, a couple years back, so it might be worth checking out if you want to hear more about Angel. All right. So uh, next up is Dial H for Hero, uh, which is 
more of a concept than a particular character. Although this True. listing this listing focuses on Christopher King, uh, who is the later version, the original version of of Dial H for Hero was Robbie Reed, who first Sakamiji guy, who first appeared in House <laughs> of Mystery number one fifty six, and then they rebrought they brought back the concept back in Adventure Comics. Uh, with two characters, Chris King and Vicky Grant, and here the, the listing is mostly about Chris King, right. and it, t- it talks. It, it might be a little confusing because it mentions their first appearance as Legion of Superheroes number two seventy two, but I believe that was one of the um, the free books, like the free insert the, books. Yep, got it. The, so that, that's uh, why they're. I think released. bonus book was the term, yeah, or yeah, something like that. That's why they're in there. So it talks about the Dial H for Hero, and again, for anybody who doesn't know, the Dial H for Hero was this literal dial. Uh, that Robbie Reed found in a cave, and if you touched it and you dialed H E R O, it gave you powers of a brand new superhero. And the whole idea was, in the later versions, they they, they were submitted by readers. Uh, they people wrote in sending sending characters. The only exception to that was, I think, at one point Robbie Reed did turn into Plastic Man. Uh, that's like the one time he was an established character. I never read that story, but it's they mention it in the um, oh, gets talked about all the time. Yeah, in the old uh, Who's Who, the, in the old Who's Who series, they talk about that. But here, uh, he has since come back, Christopher King, uh, and they talk about his dealing with Star Labs and stuff like that. So that's why it's kind of an updated listing because the, the concept has been sort of brought back for the nineties. Yeah, he had been appearing alongside with the Titans in some right. of the Titans. They books, talk about so. that he's working with Hawk and Dove and stuff like that. Yep. Now, uh, I don't know if you mentioned the art. It's Paris no, Cullens no. and Terry Austin. Uh, you get Chris coming at you in the middle, and then you've got Vicky on the side. I don't know, I guess, or is that Robbie, I guess, coming at you, actually? I can't. No, I guess it's no, Chris Robbie coming Reed at you. Robbie is on the right. Yeah, Robbie's on the right, Vicky's on the left, and then you see sort of their superhero forms in the back. It's, um, I love Paris Cullens, and I love Terry Austin, but I'm not sure that they're two tastes that taste great together. Um, there's just something not... I, 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 two entries in a row. I'm, I'm the stick in the mud here. Sorry. It's also it's Dial H for Hero. If you really want to follow up something and make me dislike it a lot, put Dial H for Hero in there. I can't stand it. Um, so I, I feel like that. I don't know. Paris Collins is fantastic. Terry Austin's great, but it just I don't know. Does this one work for you artistically? Their styles? It's okay. It's yeah. Not great. Um, we'll get to a Paris Collins listing shortly that is phenomenal. So I'm, yes, I'm perfectly fine saying this one's merely okay because we're going to wax his car shortly. Yeah. So uh, so what you get is Vicky went bad. And so Chris has been appearing over in the New Titans book and, and coming into a hero on his own. Sometimes he doesn't even need the dial to transform anymore. So he had appeared about three years before this in the Titans books quite a bit. And he'll be reappearing again in just a few months, which is probably why they placed him in this issue. And uh, this one's written by Mark Wade, And, uh, of course, the border's red. And we've talked about the powers and all that jazz. And so for more on Dial H for Hero – oh, by the way, you get the logo. You get the classic Dial H for uh, Hero logo on the front, which is nice. But for more on this, uh, you, know, you can check out the Silver Age crossover we did on JL May, where Diablo Frank uh, went on a huge tirade about Dial H for Hero, which is actually pretty darn funny to listen to. Frank loses mine. Uh, or you can contact Tom Zoller, your former roommate, who actually had a hero submitted and appeared in the That's Dial right. H for Hero That's series. That's right. That's right. Yep. Do you really have to mention that Frank went on a tirade? <laughs> it's sort of like I breathe oxygen. It's just yeah. It, you just, just know, know at that point, yeah. yeah Frank, Frank, Frank. Oh, there was a tirade. Okay, of course. <laughs> um, uh, so next up, as I'm sure one of your favorites, another Doom Patrol character, Dorothy Spinner, who first appeared in Doom Patrol number fourteen, drawn by Richard Case and Mark McKenna, and like the previous Doom Patrol listings, design wise, it is all of a piece because you've got the. The, the character name in the sort of white bar going down from left to right on the uh, left-hand side of the, the, the page. Um, I don't know anything about this character. She's uh, – <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean I don't know. Um, you're going to have to – I mean I read the listing, but uh, 
I'm still like, um, okay. Uh, but the drawing, <laughs> the drawing is great. Yeah, so Dorothy's running at you, and she's she's wearing a shirt that says Doom Patrol to help you identify it. Um, and she's wearing like uh, rolled up jeans and some Converse sneakers and stuff. And she's running across this like pa- warped pavement full of eyeballs. And there's a hand reaching at her, but the hand is clearly made out of like maybe a uh, paper because all the wor- you can see the words on it, like it's pages of a book or something, and creepy masks behind her, and some scary imagery. Now, Dorothy actually is not one of my favorite characters. It's a beautiful entry, though. Uh, she is a young girl who uh, has, a, I guess, a birth defect, which made her look a, a little bit like a chimpanzee, actually. And she ends up meeting the Doom Patrol, and they take her on board, and they find out that she has this power to physically manifest images from her subconscious. And she becomes – it's not the heart and soul of the Doom Patrol. I mean, that's that's Robot Man. It's Cliff Steele. But she definitely becomes a beloved sort of – almost like a Kitty Pride, maybe, I guess, is a way to say you know, where where everyone loves her. She's the young girl who gives them a lot of inspiration. And if I remember right, I believe she's the one who defeats the one of the big bads, the candle maker, eventually. But um, she, here you don't get a lot of text because she hasn't been around all that long. Even though she first appeared in Doom Patrol 14 and they're on issue 44 at this point, 30 issues, she's only done so much in the series. So um, interesting character. So um, what was I going to say? Oh, okay. So um, – that's really all I have on her because uh, I don't remember that much about her either, and I read those issues. I guess I need to go back and reread them. Well, this entry is written by Mark Wade. Of course, you got the red border for Hero, and um, we. And so, if you want more on Dorothy Spinner, the best place to go probably is the Waiting for Doom podcast, uh, or you can in fact watch the Waiting for Doom. I'm sorry, not wait, <laughs> the Waiting for Doom TV show, wow. the Doom Patrol TV show. Uh, I don't think she's made an appearance on there yet, but uh, certainly, if if they keep going, I'm sure she will make it in there somehow. And uh, did you mention it's Richard Case and Mark McKenna? I did. Okay, fantastic. All right. Uh, next up is Draga uh, from the Adventures of Superman number 454, created by Jerry Ordway. He's a bad guy. He's a big, he kind of looks, he's got a, uh, he doesn't look like uh, Doomsday, but he has that kind of shape to him. He's like just a big monster dude. This is drawn by, again, Paris Collins and inked by Dennis Janke. This now look, I the character I read the listing. He's an he's a he's a highly skilled warrior versed in the use of a score of weapons. Yada yada yada. I didn't really mm-hmm. care about the listing. That's fine. But the drawing is fantastic. He's got he's this big muscle dude. He's wearing a Superman shirt, except it's magenta colored. It's got the S shield, and he's sort of raging into the the heavens. He's on a, like a meteoroid kind of thing. But I love the angle. He's kind of bent backwards a little. He's got his fists like going. Like, it's got such life and power to it. In fact, he's, he's yelling so loud. There's a guy back. He's like knocking a guy like off the ground. There's a guy like floating <laughs> behind him. I love this drawing. I mean, it just, it's just super. No point. I love the planets in the background. It just gives such a cosmic feel to it because yeah. the planets are all clustered together there. If I could change anything on this drawing is I would get someone to recolor it because the colors hurt my eyes between the magenta of the shirt and the yellow pants and Pink like cape and green yeah. skin. Yeah. Yeah. It, the colors hurt my eyes. But other than that, I dig the drawing as well. Very much so. There's a, there's a lot going on here, which is sort of interesting. He's so a this, foot soldier for Mongol. Exactly. He was war, he was Mongol's warlord champion actually uh, on war world. And uh, the, here's the interesting thing is he starts off as a bad guy. I, now, by the way, he's, he's listed as Draga and death, right? Is his name like uh, R-I-T-E? I have no recollection of that name whatsoever. So apparently it's apparently that went away or I just don't have a good memory. But Draga is an interesting character because he sort of becomes honorable later. 
he, uh, he, he follows an honor code that's outlined here. But later on, he ends up getting involved in the Panic and the Sky crossover, which is a phenomenal Superman story from, from the post-crisis era. And he ends up being somewhat of a hero. He helps out the good guys. He ends up dying, and he's held in high regard. And so when I saw his border as villain, I was like, what? No, but I forgot. Yeah, he did start off that way, which is sort of interesting. So you mentioned, right, yeah, he's he's just a big monster bad guy fighter. Yeah, I mean, that's the gist of him. And um, so, so the guy in the background is a space cabbie. Do you see the space cabbie guy? Yes. Do you see what his name is? No. It's Cramden. Uh, once you get past the K okay. and the apostrophe and the weird spelling, yes, it's absolutely a play on Jackie Gleason's uh, Ralph Crandon from The Honeymooners, which is super fun. I kind of wish they'd use the old space cabbie, but that's fine. This guy's great. And uh, it, it's uh, written by Roger Stern, who, of course, was writing the Superman books at the time. And um, uh, let's see. I guess that's in, it. Yeah. One of the insets, we see him grabbing Cramden and, like, shaking him upside down. Yes, yes. And then you see the Krypton Man, which I, I love the Krypton Man concept in the far right, which is where Superman was got possessed by the Kryptonian heritage and stuff like that. So if you if you want more on Draga, the best place to go is probably the From Crisis to Crisis podcast with Michael Bailey, where they're covering all of the post-crisis Superman stories. Yeah, and the logo is cool, too, by the way. It's just done kind of like a blood red lettering. It's just kind of, like, hand done. It looks yeah. great. I love this listing. It's so fun. Well done. Uh, next up is Element Girl, uh, drawn by Colleen Doran and Malcolm Jones. And this is kind of uh, – well, like I said, it's not kind of. It's a sad one. She's just sitting Fair. in a chair smoking a cigarette and she's wearing, and she's looking at a, a, a TV and she sees herself in happier days when she was like the happy Element Girl, which was kind of I guess presumably we're seeing the version of her now, uh, although of course she's deceased. Uh, that we're that we're seeing the version of her later on in life, recalling maybe the time when she was appearing in the Metamorpho comic as drawn by Ramona Freyden, where she what, was like a happy-go-lucky character. What you're seeing is sort of a snapshot of a, a moment in time from Sandman number twenty, which is exactly as you described it. She's she's actually watching old VCR tapes, I believe. Of right, we see the VCR on top of the yep. So yeah, she's she's sad about missing those old days because you see all the masks on the wall. She was you know, sort of had a trouble with who her identity was, if I remember correctly. Because yeah, she appeared in sixty seven and sixty eight quite regularly in the Metamorpho comic, and then nothing. Like sixty eight, she's gone, done. And then uh, just nine months before this issue, of who's who? She appeared in Sandman number twenty, which is where all of this happened. And uh, if I remember correctly, uh, she yeah she ends up dying, and death takes her away. It's kind of thing. well, we see that in the inset. We see yes, her literally do. being right. reduced into nothing. Yeah. Yes, very, uh, very powerful, powerful. Uh, the the front the front image is so powerful. It tells the whole story right there. Oh, it's written by Mark Wade, and as mm-hmm. I was looking at the listing, uh, he uses the word surcease, uh, which uh, is uh, is he te- they're like in the uses he teased us without surcease, uh, and I mean that is a that's a that's a vocabulary word if I ever heard from. And basically what it means is to cease from some action or desist. So huh. basically, it basically means die. Okay. Uh, but I mean, boy, I, that, you know, the, I don't come across too many words in comic books. Where I'm like, what does that word even mean? Uh, but, uh, that was, I was like, well, okay, he's really reaching for the stars here in this, in this listing. Um, it's kind of strange. Well, maybe not strange, but her powers and weapons are very short. It's one paragraph, only like two sentences. Um, considering that she had, you know, a lot of the same powers as Metamorpho. You think she might get a slightly longer powers weapon listing than that, but it's it's relatively brief. Well, yeah, I mean, Metamorpho's power is pretty much to do anything he wants right. within the chemical limitations, and yeah, so yeah, it is a bit short. So <laughs> it is kind of funny that as Element Girl, she's sort of wearing a bra. 
Yes. Uh, like, I mean, you really could just have her breasts be the orange and, you know, uh, purple of Metamorpho, and it would be fine. But for some reason, she's wearing this kind of, like, coconut half-shell bra uh, made of a different element. It just looks kind of like a little goofy. Well, which is creepier because Metamorpho doesn't wear a shirt. I mean, like, his body right. is half orange. and half, So is she actually wearing a bra or are her boobs actually made of some other black Right, that's what I'm saying. It just looks really strange. Yeah, it's, it's very, very weird. weird so. You know, why, why are we wasting time? We need to get to the next entry. That's what's important okay. here. All right, all right. Uh, <laughs> next up, of course, is Firestorm. Shag, take, take it away. Oh, I'm taking it away? Okay. Yeah, you go ahead. This is Firestorm. This is your moment. Here you go. All right. So this is Firestorm during its elemental phase, which anyone who just groaned can turn off the podcast. All right? Uh, the elemental phase is great, and I love it, and this is a gorgeous, stunning drawing. Now, you talked about sort of the cosmic drawing done by uh, Paris Collins earlier. Now, this one is not the, the, the rage against the sky, but just the cosmicness of this. So he's, it's Firestorm. He's flying in space. You see this, you know, the, the black and white stars behind him with one bright sun. You see an asteroid belt. You see this meteoroid that's got um, a pockmarked you know, moon that's full of like fire pits and stuff, and Firestorm's flames are just everywhere it's it's beautiful they use tom mandrake did a great job filling the page if i had any criticisms of, of this well i guess i do because i'm about to mention them but the two criticisms i would put against this is he's really 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 skinny like he needs a sandwich like if you look at the width of his body it's it's probably should be wider and then the other is the, the way one of the things with the elemental firestorm is his stomach always had this like white bright light coming out of it um which is a little unusual thing but it works well here the coloring didn't get it quite right they just kind of gave him like a tummy glow uh so it looks like et's finger glowing a little bit so that's the only criticism there i, I really have of that entry but otherwise i think it's absolutely stunning one of the things i love about firestorm this version is you know, he's barefoot and, and his hair the mane his mane of hair is just massive it's like it reminds me of like a lion's mane it's so cool looking what, what do you, you know be honest don't hurt my feelings. Well, you're going to anyway, I'm sure. What do you think of this version of Firestorm and this when, arc here? When have I ever worried about that? Uh, I, I have never read any of these Firestorm comics. Oh. Uh, him is the elemental, so I don't know anything about it. The drawing is great. I'm a fan of Tom Mandrake. Just a couple of weeks ago, Sean Ross and I waxed Tom Mandrake's car over on Mountain Comics. So I'm a fan, and so I like the artwork a lot. I, this design, I, I just look at this and I just kind of go, "This is this that's Firestorm? Like it yep. just... You know, so I don't know anything about it. I, I, I mean, I miss the old version, and you see that on the insets where he's kind of the happy-go-lucky firestorm as opposed to this kind of moody elemental <laughs> firestorm. Um, but, you know, if you if you like it, you're, I mean, you're the mega fan, so if, you, if it passes muster with you, there must be something to it. So what you get is you get these three snapshots, as you mentioned, the classic Firestorm there. The middle one, then you get the um, blank slate version of Firestorm, which was not happy-go-lucky, by the way. And then you get the elemental Firestorm trying to mac on Firehawk. So the, the gist of this is what happens is you, you find out, of course, through retconning, is that Firestorm was always intended to be the, uh, the fire elemental. Much like Swamp Thing is the earth elemental, Firestorm was always intended to be the fire elemental. And it was going to be Martin Stein. So that when during the atomic explosion at Hudson Nuclear Power Point in 1977, he was supposed to become the fire elemental of Earth. But Ronnie Raymond was there, and it screwed the whole thing up. And so they ended up as, you know, the firestorm we know and love. Well, many years later, through a whole bunch of permutations of what happens, they end up getting to the point where you – get the elemental firestorm and the book takes a complete different change there is no longer firestorm transforming back and forth between ronnie and the professor and firestorm no firestorm just exists and the people that went in to form firestorm are just gone 
they don't exist anymore. It's just one gestalt being. And it's, it's sort of like a Swamp Thing in some regards. He, he's a newly born being learning the Earth, and he knows it's his job to protect the Earth. And if necessary, he will wipe out the entire human race and cleanse them with fire if they're bad for the Earth. And so there's a whole lot – you would love it because there's a whole lot of like uh, environmental issues. He's going to people and threatening to basically burn them down if they don't stop polluting the environment. I mean there's a lot of really heavy environmental stuff. It is – it's – I don't want to say the comic is mature because it's not exactly like you know mature. But I swear I, I feel like it was proto-Vertigo. Like you know how before those like books became – before like uh, say – I don't know. Uh, Shade the Changing Man, or I, I don't want to say Sandman because that's such a piece into itself, but you know, uh, maybe Constantine or something like that. Before they became Vertigo, they were still already mature. Mm-hmm. This one was just just riding the line of not mature like gore and violence and stuff like that, but just comics that made you think. Uh, you know, when he met the, the African gods and, and things like that, and so the comic made you think, and it and it brought a more mature storytelling to the table, which is why it got canceled. And uh, right. And it was just such a great comic, and it was so different. And yes, it's if you love the classic Firestorm, you may have a hard time accepting this version as Firestorm, and that's okay. But if you look at it as you know uh, what it was for itself, it's a great story. So, oof, boy, I really got excited there. So at this point, what happened was at the end of issue 100 of Firestorm, uh, the whole gestalt being of Firestorm got changed around, and by the end, it was just Professor Stein as the new elemental Firestorm, and he was trapped out in space. He could no longer come to the Earth. He could only exist out in space. He went and had a giant fight with Brimstone on the sun, where they both grew to the, like enormous proportions, which is like super epic. It was great. That was about a year ago at this point, and and Firestorm would really th- won't make many more appearances. He does some cameos here and there, but we won't see the elemental. Firestorm until 1995 again, really, in any capacity. I will say, uh, like, I know that you just spoke at length uh, about uh, how much you like this Firestorm. You I probably didn't say, listen to any of it. Uh, no, I did. Uh, uh, but I will say, I'm very dubious of superheroes being, like, destined to be chosen to be the thing. Mm-hmm. Those, those stories make me roll my eyes really hard. And okay. so you saying that they turned Firestorm from the from the character that we know, which is the Jerry Conway version, where he's like the DC version of Spider-Man, into like a, a fire elemental? I have to admit, I just kind of go, ugh, really? You know? So I, I got to admit, I'm not – you're not selling me on it. Okay, well wh- – <sighs> What happened was the, they came to basically John Ostner and said, hey, the Firestorm sales are, sli- are flagging. Uh, can you do something to boast, boost them up, shake it up? So that's when he created the blank slate Firestorm. And they began to generate some interest. But then, again, sales began to flag. Now, personally, I think that was Joe Brozowski's fault, but that's just me. Uh, that's the, being the artist. And then he had to shake it up again. And so he, he could have gone off and just written a different comic book, which would have been the fire elemental of Earth. Uh, but in this case, he t- decided to take Firestorm down that path. And if you can get over how he came to be and just to enjoy the stories that are there, it's really damn good. I mean, it's really, really good. Now, I'm glad you mentioned Jerry Conway because it's interesting. There's no created by credit here. No, there's which- not. They really should have been, you know, because we know for a fact that he gets uh, Jerry Conway gets uh, credited as the creation of Firestorm, him and Al, Mon- um, Al Milgram, mm-hmm. which is very strange. Hmm. Um, what else? So, of course, the border is red, although it could have been black because at this point, you know, Firestorm wasn't necessarily mankind's friend uh, through all that whole series. And written by John Ostrander, which is great. And by the way, my copy um, 
uh, has John Ostrander's signature on it. So there you go. Cool. That, was, that was wonderful to meet him. And uh, at this point, you know, if you want to find more on Firestorm, you could check out. There's there's a, a website doesn't really do much very often called Firestorm Fan. Um, actually, in all reality, I did do several posts in the last several months. So there's Firestorm Fan, and of course, we do the Aquaman and Firestorm Fire and Water podcast, which is what created this whole damn network. That's right. Check out any one of those. And sooner or later, we will get to the elemental issues, and Rob will read them. Okay. Uh, well, one, you know, one last thing I am curious about. I can never remember whether this series uh, keeps consistent with the whole group affiliation thing because it says group affiliation none, oh. which, which means currently he's not a member of the Justice League, which of course is true, but he was – for a long time, so I can never remember whether they're only listing, you know, were they currently in a group or were they ever in a group? Maybe they're addressing this incarnation of Firestorm. Like, you know, the, the Fire Elemental version was never part of a, a team. Okay. Maybe that's All what right. they're saying. All right. Yeah, but then they're also seeing his first appearance as Firestorm number one, so it's the same character. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they should have so. definitely said Justice League. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway, okay. All right, next up, The Flash. Uh, kind of... Interesting that the flat and I okay I love finish his sentence. Let <laughs> You're finish, all over the place. There. Let me finish his sentence. I'm a little surprised that he's not the cover character because it's okay. the Flash over Robin. That said, of course, now I realize well the reason he isn't is because the Flash that they're talking about here, which is Barry Allen, is deceased. Yeah, uh, and so he's not an ongoing character. And of course, Robin being a Batman related character, and this is 1990. Batman is the hottest thing ever in history, so they're always going to you know. Take the opportunity to put a Batman character on the cover as opposed to anybody else. Robin had also just finished his miniseries the month before. And so he was was an insanely uh, well-selling character at this point. And Flash did get the cover to number three. The Wally That's West true, right? The yeah. Wally West version. That is true. Yep. So anyway, it's drawn by Carmen Infantino and Carl Kiesel, who make a quite nice combination. They do. Uh, I really like this listing. It's got him running from the foreground to the uh, – for, for a – a um, a mostly vertical format, which of course all these pages are. They managed to get some semblance of covering a great distance uh, because he's running from left to right, and then he's literally running off the page and then coming back into the page, kind of forming an arc and passing in front of the camera. And then above him is his rogues gallery. We see Trickster and Captain Boomerang. Uh, Samson means grandfather. We see Captain Cold. We see Abracadabra, Mirror Master, the top Professor. Zoom and uh, not our Professor Zoom, the other Professor Zoom, and uh, and uh, I think Weather Wizard, I believe, is the, yes. the other person we see back there. Uh, and it mentions that he's deceased, but then it talks about how after the crisis he became sort of one with the Speed Force, and so he's not Barry Allen isn't really dead. Uh, he was given the gift of being able to die, not in pain but and despair, but forever reliving the greatest years of his life. So he's sort of in this kind of heaven sort of thing. And on the the, the um, little driver's license photo on the back, I really love the drawing. It's uh, Kiesel's a great uh, – we knew Carl Kiesel was a great anchor. But I think he's a particularly great anchor for Carmen Infantino because, look, let's be all let's be honest. Carmen Infantino during these years – Definitely, his was past his prime. There's no doubt about it. Yes. And there were times where he was inked by somebody not great, and his stuff looked pretty rough. But here, I think this looks gangbusters great. Oh, it looks fantastic. Yeah, it's not that Carmen wasn't great. It just he becomes so stylized. Yeah, it got it got more and more and more stylized, yeah. and it's got. It was little, almost like a yeah. a stylized version of himself at that point. Yeah. So here, Carl just cleans it up, and it looks great. Now, um, I, I am going to correct you on one thing, only because it sticks in my craw is the Barry didn't become part of the Speed Force. I would have been perfectly fine with that. Instead, what happened is he actually 
became the lightning bolt. That's true. I'm sorry, I misspoke. Time yes. gives yes. him himself his own power. So he, goes he into is his loop. own grandpa, yeah. if you will. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that I've always hated that. I hate that. It just drives me nuts. So I'm not a fan of that version. The Speed Force, I'm cool with, though, uh, if that was actually what happened. Um, it's interesting here. They quantify the 30th century when he goes off to the 30th century after the end of Flash, what, number 350, mm-hmm. and before Christ on Earth number one, they say he only got one month to, of time with Iris, which is so sad because, you know, that was supposed to be his going off into the sunset, uh, you know, happiness was go off with Iris before he died. So he's only there for a month. And considering, uh, I think they had twins, they must have got pretty busy in that month. But, um, <laughs> That's uh, And really the big key of why he's in here is, is two reasons. One, because the Flash book was starting to gain some popularity. And the other is because the Flash TV series was still on the air. That's and right. the star of the Flash TV series is Barry Allen. That's right. So makes perfect sense. Of course, Mark Wade wrote this entry. He wasn't writing the book yet, so it's a little bit of foreshadowing. And uh, the first appearance, as you mentioned, showcase number four kicks off uh, the Silver Age right there. And, of course, your border is red. And for more on The Flash, I mean, you could check out the old TV show from the 90s or the current TV show. Both are about Barry Allen. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's, 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 it's a really sharp listing. Oh, by the way, I mentioned the, the third inset. It's him getting hit by the lightning bolt, and mm-hmm. it actually has a sound effect. There oh, it are does. very Gosh. few insets that have that. Very few, very little sound effects on this thing. Uh, so, yeah, this is a, a, a great listing. It was one of the great characters of all time and deserves a great listing, and he got it. So, good job. Yep. Um, and then now we have the Flash supporting cast. And, of course, in this instance, we're talking about the, the, the Wally West Flash supporting mm-hmm. cast, not the Flash that just deceased. So, there's Mary West and John Williams Garrick, Mason Trollbridge. The McGee's, Linda Park, and Connie Noleski. It's drawn by Greg LaRoque and Jose Marzan, and it's written by Mark Wade. Uh, you know, I mean, look, I'm happy that they gave the supporting cast uh, pages. I think that's good, because, but I, this is also very boring. Oh, I think it's fun. They're all dressed up for a fancy party. Like, uh, I, I don't know what exactly the occasion is. And we is. see Wally in the background, too. Well, yeah, so they're all dressed up in these fancy clothes, and uh, Trollbridge is, is checking his watch as if to say, okay, Wally's late. And you see Wally coming in the, in the door, and he's wearing a tuxedo. So, I mean, clearly they're all dressed up just for something nice. And in the background, you kind of see this way deep in the shadows. You see this nice poster uh, that features uh, Jay Garrick, Barry Allen, and Wally West all as the flashes together, which is a fun picture. So I think it's perfectly fine. Yes. Is, is it is it exciting? No, but is it nicely done? Sure. And and Connie looks super hot, you know, which works well for me because uh, Con- Linda Park is giving her side eye too. Well, understandably, because what's right. happening here is at this point Connie is Wally's girlfriend, and I I love the bit here where they talk about Connie. Uh, everyone else has like these big blocks of text, and it just says Wally's girlfriend is a model from East Texas, and she's really good at it. <laughs> I don't really remember Connie other than she was hot. Uh, I assume that meant she was, I don't know, really good at being a model. But Linda Park is in here, and they talk about how there's just this tiny bit of a budding romance between Wally and, and Linda. But it's uncomfortable for Linda because he's with Connie right now. So her giving the side eye is actually perfect. And I love that Joan Garrick is in here. I loved when she was a, a supporting character because, you know, Jay's out of the picture at this point. He's in Valhalla fighting, uh, uh, you know, fighting forever in the last days of the JSA. So having Joan as a supporting cast member was great. Mary West, who is, I believe, Martin Gray's patron saint of all mothers. Uh, he adores Mary West. Martin Gray does. So I'm sure he's thrilled to see her in here. And um, I, given some of the stuff we've seen from Greg LaRock over the past couple of years in Who's Who, I'm thrilled with this. I'm very happy with it. All right. Cool. And, uh, and once again, there is no Wally West 
current podcast that I know of. Uh, anyone mm-hmm. covering the Wally West Flash series? If I'm wrong, let me know, folks. And uh, uh, by the way, the border's blue for supporting cast. Okay. Uh, next up is Garen Beck from Invasion Number One, another member of the Legion. Uh, now, I got taken to task in the feedback a little for not having any comments on all the Legion listings in the previous issue, and I don't think that's entirely fair, but we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to it. That said, I like this one actually a lot. It's drawn by Jim Fern, mm-hmm. Texas by Mark Wade, but I like that it – it's got a different angle. Like it's a slight down shot as he's looking up into the camera. He's got like kind of like a Wolverine hair sort of <laughs> thing going. Uh, I'm not really familiar with Mr. Fern's work, but I actually like this as a portrait. You know, it, I mean, he's just standing there. It's nothing terribly exciting. Uh, and he is listed as a hero, uh, but he's in normal clothes and stuff like that. But nevertheless, I think it has a little more visual life than a lot of the ones Giffen was doing for the five years later Legion listings. No, that's fair. And by the way, just for those of you who aren't familiar with the character, to be more specific, it's the acronym Legion. So this is the 20th century version of the Legion. Yeah, and I can't, the, oh, Garen, God, I can't keep all these straight. Oh, my gosh. It's so hard. It's so hard when there's two Legions. Oh, my gosh. How do I keep them straight? Oh, wait. I know the first appearance of every member of the Justice League of America, Rob. So I think you can handle a couple of Legion names. Anyway. Yeah, I don't want to, though. <laughs> so he is basically he's just a regular guy. And he is a good – he was a good cop. On a bad, bad, bad planet. And he was in – ultimately, he was in the absolute right time, right place at the absolute right time. He was locked up in a jail cell during invasion with uh, Vril Dox. So he just gets pulled along for the ride because Vril Dox is you know, a freight train of energy right after invasion, goes off and forms the Legion and becomes the head of this huge intergalactic organization. And Garen Beck just happened to have been there at the right time and gets – caught up in the slipstream, if you will. And he's a fun character because he's a bit of a jerk. He's a bit of a slacker, but he's also a, a good guy. And you can't help but root for him. And he does have crazy hair, absolutely always crazy hair. And he got caught up in this situation with the Emerald Eye, and, and, and that was a fun story. Now, I've been reading uh, myself, the, after we did a couple of Legion entries a couple issues ago, I started reading the Legion acronym series on the DC app, and I'm loving it. I'm up to issue, like, I don't know, 15 or 16 now. Loving that series. It's so much fun to revisit it from the 90s. It, make, it brings me a lot of joy so it's been very good and uh, he also you'll see in the far right inset picture there's his wife uh he tried to infiltrate a gangster's mob and so he married the gangster's daughter who was this uh, morbidly obese woman and he hates her uh and, and so but she actually just genuinely kind of sweet and loves him and so he's kind of tolerates her it's it's, a, it's an interesting character issue to deal with so anyway um at this point, Legion 91 was on issue number 28, and if you want more on uh, Legion of uh, – on Garen Beck, you can check out the Legion of Super Bloggers for their coverage there, or you can check out the First Strike Invasion podcast because they do did an episode on the acronym Legion. And by the way, Jim Fern was drawing Legion at this point, so that's why Ah, I okay. Say. All right. Yep. I knew I'd heard the name a little, but I wasn't really sure who it was. Yeah, I'm not uh, totally familiar with him either. Okay. Yeah, I like the artwork. Uh, next up is Hippolyta. Of course, Wonder Woman's mom, uh, seen in the movie. Uh, she first appeared in All-Star Comics number 8 alongside her daughter. And then they also mentioned the current series, which is Wonder Woman series number 1, the George Perez series. She's a member of the supporting cast. I mean, you know, it gets into the whole history of her as an Olympian goddess. And she's another one of these characters that can do so many things, and yet the powers and weapons are. She's an, an immortal, uh, possessed of a tremendous strength, and has been trained in all Greek methods of hand-to-hand combat. She's also an exceptionally wise and just ruler. That's it. That's it. That's all we need for our politics. That's fine. Uh, you know, we talked about the Flash supporting cast picture. It was a little dreary and boring. I find this one immensely boring to look at. Drawn by Cynthia Martin, I should say. I didn't mention that. Which is interesting because, you know, her Aries picture 
was pretty darn good. Like, in fact, we, we, we argued that it could have been mistaken for Perez almost. Yeah, it looked very Perez-like. This, this one, one is not. not. This yeah. one's just kind of boring. I mean, it's, it's fine, though. I mean, it, I guess it's representative. I don't know. The, the, the thing that stands out for me, though, in this entry is they actually take time in the last paragraph to describe her personality. And that doesn't happen a lot in this series, uh, in the text. A lot of times you get what they did, but you don't necessarily get their personality. The best entries do give you that. And here, uh, Mark Wade's taking the time to give you that. So I'm, I'm happy with it. So uh, at this point, Wonder Woman was on issue number 55, just three months away from the War of the Gods storyline. And as you mentioned, you can find Hippolyta in the Wonder Woman movie. Or she also uh, was in some Justice League um, Unlimited, or actually, I guess technically Justice League. But anyway, check out the JLU cast for some uh, episodes with Hippolyta. All right. Uh, Next up is Joe Potato. My gosh. (laughs) Another supporting character. This is very heavy with supporting characters. Uh, He first appeared in Detective Comics number 594. He gets a creator credit, which is amazing. I guess people are really excited about getting some residual money for Joe Potato. Uh, (laughs) He's credited by Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle. The art is by Norm Brayfogle. Uh, I don't really know this character much at all other than uh, this listing. Um, It's funny that the text is listed as written by Kevin Dooley and Joe Potato. Mm-hmm. So he himself is given credit, and it's written like a real film, film noir kind of thing. It opens with Gotham City's like a woman. Sometimes she treats you sweet, like candied yams, and other times she treats you like greasy fries. The city's always treated me like a potato bug, hence the <laughs> name. So I mean, this is you know, I mean, I will, I got to give Kevin Dooley some credit. He's trying to add some life to what could be probably kind of boring listing. Although as drawn by Norm Brayfogle, it's not going to be that dull because it's cool. And we got him in the, he's got his badge. He's got this ridiculous dirty Harry gun. I mean, the thing <laughs> is the size of a cannon. And then there's Batman swinging in the background and there's like a, there's a woman and her daughter, I guess, presumably he's about to be attacked. And that's what Joe Potato was stopping this guy from. And in the back, he's got his, uh, he's got his van, his potato PI, cause he's a private detective. He's not a cop. He's actually a private detective. Which and is why then, I don't understand why he's flashing a police badge. Yeah, well, I, you know what? I thought it's not. A, it shouldn't be a police. Well, it says police on it, though. It yeah. does. Yeah, I don't know. Um, don't get that. <laughs> yeah, I love and group affiliation may apply for Justice League membership. Oh, that is hysterical. Yeah, the entry is super fun. Now, by the way, look at the look at the front side of it, though. The little girl who's cowering. Do you see what she's holding? She's got some sort of doll. I can't. It's really a Mister. It's, it's a Mister Potato Head. Oh, I guess. It, oh, oh, of course. Isn't Where's that great? It? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I love the art on this. It's great. And you mentioned it's funny about this entry. Like everyone remembers Joe Potato only because he has an entry and no one remembers him from the comics. Because before this, he only had three appearances. After this, he only has three more appearances and is gone forever. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's it. So he is remembered for basically being in Who's Who and everyone going, who's that? (laughs) The inset is fun because there's a shot of him being shot out of an ejector seat from the Batmobile. So it's him – being shot sky sky you know skyward and then it even ends with him talking about he says after all i am what i am oh i didn't pick up on that oh my gosh they mentioned the 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 ejector seat in the entry uh i love that he carries this potato peeler basically it's a knife that looks like a potato peeler it's one of his signature things right we see it on the inset too yep the the only downfall of this thing actually is um anthony tolan did the coloring this I don't know what he was going for, but he put a lot of white highlights on his face, mm-hmm. like maybe like, like supposed to be like a bright light is on him, blanching him out or something. Yeah, I couldn't quite figure that out. 
Well, I Googled other pictures of him just from the comics, and I didn't see anything like that. So I think it's just a bad choice in coloring. It's yeah, just a, I, I couldn't get what that was supposed to be yeah. conveying. I didn't really understand it. So Definitely takes away from it. So, uh, again, it's a super fun entry. Uh, I love it a lot. If you want more on Joe Potato, I guess the guys on Nightcast are going to get to it someday uh, if they ever bring that show back from the dead. <laughs> All right. Uh, all right. So next up is Johnny Thunder, not the bad one, one of the cool ones, and not uh, the cowboy either. Not, not the cowboy either. The private detective who first appeared in her own miniseries, Johnny Thunder Number One, uh, created by Roy Thomas, Dick Giordano, and Ernie Cologne. That's it. I didn't. I didn't know that Ernie Cologne was involved in this. I, I bought the miniseries at the time, and I don't remember Ernie Cologne being involved in it. So I'm not sure how he's. Maybe he was the editor or something. I don't, I don't, I don't remember. But what a great collection of creators. Yeah, I mean that's amazing. Uh, again, it's drawn by Dick Giordano. This was. We all know Dick Giordano, uh, like a lot of other comic creators, wasn't as big on superheroes as some other people. He liked more kind of street level characters. Like he loved Batman, mm-hmm. and so Johnny Thunder. Now this Johnny Thunder does have a superpower in that she basically. She, I mean, she herself is just a detective, but she has access to this, basically this Thunderbolt character that comes out of her. Uh, we see that on the inset. Um, but, I mean, her herself, she's just like a regular detective, and I could see why that was something Dick Giorgiano really liked. At the moment, I was trying to figure out why she's getting a listing here because the miniseries is from 1985. It didn't go past that, past the four issues. But then I looked it up, and I saw that she had a run in Infinity, Inc. as a guest star. Uh, but here's, is, here's the thing. See, I, I wondered this too. That run in Infinity Inc. was three years ago. That's in fact, true. this Who's Who entry is apparently her last appearance, period. Hmm. Now, I swear I thought I saw her in some stuff later. But well, she appeared – I think her – Mike's Amazing World mentions that there's a post-crisis Johnny Thunder that appeared in Infinity Inc. like number 47 – Right, but that's uh, still three years before this. Is that really still three? Yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, then, then this was just a gimme for Dick Giordano, I guess. Or he was trying to bring her back. He could have been that he's like, okay, hey, let's do, a, I don't know, an action comics or a, a, maybe a showcase or something. They had plans for trying to bring her back. Because a lot of these, like, remember, we saw all these outsiders characters too that were mm-hmm. getting ready to be in the outsiders relaunch that never happened. So it could be that he had plans. Yeah, because it, it boggled my mind too. I couldn't figure it out. Now, as far as her uh, being, you know, it sort of reminds me of a combination of the, the classic Johnny Thunder from Earth 2, who had the genie, right. uh, combined with maybe like Negative Woman. It's, uh, you know, between those two is kind of the concept you get for Johnny Thunder here. She did, uh, she did appear in Crisis. She, uh, she has a cameo in the first issue where she's at a detective convention, and they mm-hmm. discover the body of Angleman, who has immolated himself. Uh, I rem- said I remembered I, – I read this miniseries at the time. I remembered liking it. She's got a cool look. She wears this white suit. Mm-hmm. And it looks like Steve Martin uh, <laughs> except she's a really beautiful woman. So I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I have an affection for this character that probably isn't really born out of reality. But I like this listing. It's classic Dick Giordano and it just – I like the logo. I think the logo is fun. So I don't know. I just have a, I have a soft spot for her. Well, she's got a nice shot in my on my crisis poster that's on my wall too. So I, I I like the idea of the character more than I've liked anything I've read of her. I mean, it got in the Infinity Inc. stories. Unfortunately, started revealing like the Thunderbolt was an alien, and she started dating Skyman for a while. And then she yeah. lost her powers. So it it got a little funky. But yeah, it's a it's um, Dick Giordano. So you just kind of forgive things. So mm-hmm. of course the border is red, and um, yeah, that's that's about all I've got on her. All right, let's move on. Uh, the Kilgore, uh, or in the back listing, just Kilgore. Uh, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know that you actually are supposed to say it like that, but I can't help it because it. How else are you supposed to say it? It's well, it, K- it, 
What? Well, go ahead. I'm sorry. It's K I L G percentage R E. Uh, I mean, so I guess not say. I mean, Kilgore isn't really right either. But how, how the hell else are we supposed to pronounce it? Really? That's how uh, I've always said it. Yeah, um, he's an electromagnetic organism. He first appeared in Flash number three. I think part of the reason I say it like that is because the only other famous Kilgore that I know is Kilgore Trout from uh, Kurt Vonnegut books. Mm. Uh, he appeared in Slaughterhouse Five, and actually appeared in, in a number of Vonnegut books. I guess they have a mix. There's a uh, you know, Vonnegut universe at that point. Um, there's no real connection there in terms of the character. This this guy is a sort of a, a creature that zips through, channels through electrical powers and stuff like that. It says Kilgore's power is seemingly limitless. It, it can travel. He looks like kind of like a male. And then on the back, he looks like a female. So it can travel at will throughout the world's power systems. It can infiltrate and animate electrical objects, even to the point of possessing human beings by entering the electrical system of the brain. So it's an incredibly powerful being. So other than the name, there's no connection to anything I could make to, to Kurt Vonnegut. But nevertheless, that's how I say it, is Kilgore. No, maybe it is a tribute to it. Maybe Mike Barron stole that idea from there. Um, so the insert, so the, the the insert pictures on the back and the little inserts on the front, because there's all these TV monitors behind him in the front. Uh, are those from comic panels rather than original drawings for this? That's the sense I get. I don't know about hmm. you. That's like a, that, you know what? I think they are. I, I, you know what? I don't want to guess. I don't know. Some right, of them but, look familiar, but I don't know. Like that, the, the drawing of the girl does not fit any of the other sizes of any other panels that we've seen on the back right, of these things. Right. Uh, and it's a beautiful drawing. I mean, she, it, it's basically this robotic woman and she's smoking hot. It looks great. Um, so for me, like, again, after some of the lackluster stuff that LaRock had done in like the updates, uh, I'm really, really impressed. This, this one really blows me away. And I, I, I took a dig at Anthony Tallinn before with the coloring of Joe Potato. He does an exceptional job on the coloring in this one. I mean, the coloring makes the whole thing work. On the front with the creepy face. It looks and, like Captain Adam. What's that? It looks like Captain Adam. Yeah, the shininess of Captain Adam. But the TV monitors, see the face in the background with the mm-hmm. TV monitors? I mean, that's all down to the coloring there. And the uh, the coloring on the on the robot girl, I mean, it's just really, really exceptional. Now, at the end, you find out that uh, Bear, or Wally left Kilgore, like faked Kilgore's death, and then left him to just observe the humans. Uh, which is kind of weird. Like it didn't didn't take him away because he felt like yeah, okay he he'll be harmless observing humans, but this is the same guy that like you know uh, wiped out his own home planet. So I'm thinking maybe he should have took the guy to jail. But anyway, he does have the border black for villain, uh, and uh, the text is written by Mark Wade again. Mark writing another flash entry. So uh, now he last appeared in 1990, which was about a year ago. It'll be about four more years till we see him again. All right. Oh, he's got a great logo too. It's, like, it's, it's designed to look kind of like the Flash, I think. Yes, right. It's receding off into the distance. Yep. Uh, next up is Lady Shiva, uh, who first appeared in Richard Dragon Kung Fu Fighter number five, drawn by Randy DeBurke, channeling his best Paul Galassi. Uh It's uh, the shot of her with her size, uh, and after she's just having uh, taken out some punks as they're laying there, and she's sort of standing there in this sexy pose. This I feel like this is what the Who's Who modern version is for because Lady Shiva in the 70s and 80s was never that big of a character. Like she mm-hmm. was a peripheral and then when she started appearing in the Teen Titans series and then later the Question, then she became pretty big. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, really went on. So this is what this kind of series is for is to say, oh, hey, in the in the time since the last Who's Who, this character has really come to the forefront. And she's even she was always kind of a uh, sort of a villain. But here she's listed as a hero. 
That is interesting because I had the same note as like what border does she deserve because she really flip-flops back and forth between hero and villain all the time. Now at this point, she most recently appeared as of just last month in the Robin miniseries. So she actually helped train Tim Drake on how to be a hero, like how to fight and things like that. So I can see why she got the hero label. Also, she was helping uh, Victor Sage with the question. But she has a lot of history as a bad guy, too. So interesting. You know, Richard Dragon, Kung Fu fighter, we had some harsh words for him a month or two ago or a couple weeks ago, really, on another series. But, um, yeah, interesting character. And uh, one thing I wanted to mention is so Randy DeBurk draws it, right? he, He put a 1990 on that. So this is June 1991 or April 1991. He must have drawn that a long time hmm. ahead or far ahead. Uh, maybe he drew it with a question entry that sat around for a couple months. I, I, I don't know. But <laughs> now if you want more on Lady Shiva, there's a number of places you could check out. But maybe uh, Birds of Prey podcast would be a good one or Everybody Loves the Drake, which is all about Tim Drake. Might be good ones to check out. Yeah, like I said, and I like the artwork a lot. I mean, uh, the I like the, the background elements on the, the it's got a nice cityscape. It looks cool. I mean, she would obviously uh, do well to team up or fight Elektra if they ever did a DC oh, Marvel goodness. team up. <laughs> you just throw their size at each other. So uh, yeah, that's that, that is Lady Shiva. Uh, next up is the Lords of Order and Chaos, uh, who first appeared in More Fun Comics number fifty five. Now I have never read that comic. I don't have that issue or scans of it. I have scans of all of the more fun issues with Aquaman, but this, this predates Aquaman because this is, this is a Dr. Fate supporting character. I really doubt that they were called the Lords of Order uh, in more fun comics number 55. That feels like a more recent addition. And then they just went back and sort of retro and said, oh, that thing that gives Dr. Fate his powers, that was the Lords of Order. They just decided to call it that, but I really doubt that they that would that doesn't seem like a name you'd hear in a nineteen forties comic. I am flipping through it at the moment. I'm having to go kind of quickly here. You uh, have see, more I have this, fun comics? I have a hardcover Golden Age Doctor Fate archives, one of these oh, big, okay. big thick uh, fat books. Uh, it was actually gifted to me by this guy I record podcasts with, and he swears every time I tell him he doesn't remember ordering it for me. I do not remember order I don't know. Yeah, you gave this to me as a gift one year. Wow, that's so, really generous. Um, Jeez. I am not seeing anything in here where he saw – I don't even see him telling his origin in here. Um, right, I think his that's origin Dr. Fate's first appearance. More yeah, it's Dr. Fate's 55. first appearance. I think he tells his origin later. So um, without reading every word in here, uh, I don't know that it appears in there. Yeah, I think they're just going with Dr. Fate. Yep, okay, think, right. fair enough. Okay. Uh, when do you know when they changed it from Lords of Order to Lords of Order and Chaos? Because that's a that's a recent addition, and we can see that in the logo. It even says Lords of Order, and then and Chaos is kind of like thrown in. My memory uh, of when this at least came to the forefront was in the seventies in the backup stories by Marty Pascoe and Keith Giffen in the Flash comics. Okay. That's when I first remember seeing uh, the, the Lords and Order and Chaos stuff coming to the forefront. It could have been earlier, but Dr. Fate, they didn't really explore a lot of his backstory before then. So I, I think that's when it really became the big thing. Because uh, In fact, there's a great back issue article about it where Pascoe and, and Giffen talk about how they really delved into that kind of storyline. And then you get into the whole later on in the, in, in the mid-80s is when they start talking about the whole Kali Yuga thing which is a concept from Hinduism, which, by the way, J.M.D. Mateus is a Hinduist, so that's probably where he, he probably led him down this path. Kali Yuga is the idea of it's the fourth age of man, the final age. Like, there's these cycles of, of time where uh, the lords of order are winning, and they're sort of ruling the world, and then there's a period of time where the lords of chaos start to rule the world, and then once the lords of chaos are defeated, the world ends, and the cycle starts back over. So the idea is we're coming to the end of the fourth age of man, and so the world's going to end soon. And so the lords of order, rather than fighting the lords of chaos, they just kind of put up 
the hands, the Lords of Order go, you know what? Forget it. We'll just surrender. We'll let the Lords of Chaos win so that we can do this faster. So basically, instead of fighting the Lords of Chaos for thousands of years and, and losing, we're just going to surrender now so the Lords of Chaos win. The universe ends, and we can start back over, and we can be in charge again because they're, they're trying to force the cycle to start sooner. Uh, it's like it's like taking your your washer when you have your clothes in there and taking it past a cycle just straight to rinse. Uh, is what they were trying to do. That would have been great if it said that in the list. <laughs> I don't know where the creepy picture of the little girl clown comes from. Yeah, though. the Pennywise thing going on here. Oh. I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure what that's about. It's very disturbing. Um, a lot of people have strong feelings on the whole Kali Yuga and the Lords of Order and Chaos and say they were overused in the 80s. There's merit to the, those arguments, but it is what it is. And uh, it's weird. The, the text is like two really bulky paragraph columns. Of, and then the third column is just nothing. Yeah. Uh, they, Clearly ran out of words there. Mark Wade didn't have any more to say. But uh, if you want more on them, you can check out the Lords of Order podcast, which is all about Dr. Fate, done by Ed Moore. And at this point, Dr. Fate was on issue number 29, which was five issues into the Bill Messner-Lobes run. So they were uh, – Lords of Order and Chaos were still around, but they really played a heavy role in the J.M. Nimitea stuff. And now I like the art. Like I, I always love the way Sean McManus, who drew the, the, the first 24 issues of Dr. Fate, I love the way he drew the, the chaos people with the creepy smiles and demon faces and stuff. Um, the order demons or the order creatures are fine, but the, the chaos ones I always thought was really cool. Yeah. I love Sean McManus. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. All right. Next up is Nimbus, a golden age villain from adventure comics. Number 67. He is a villain of Starman, multiple Starman, as we see from the inset. I have to assume that that's why he's be- why he's getting a listing is that he has come back for the modern Starman series because we see him on the inset uh, going after the the current. What's the alter ID of the new Starman? Of that? Uh, well, at this point, Will Payton. Will Payton. Will Payton. Mm-hmm. Uh, the art is by Kevin West and Bob Smith, and. Eh. It's all right. I mean, um, it, it, you know, it's Kevin West drew it. There's Kevin J. West. I should be more specific. Um, I like Kevin J. West as an artist in the '90s. He he was a reliable draftsman. He, he did a nice job with the art. It was a little nice. Remember Paul Pelletier? Not nowadays, like when we enjoy his Aquaman stuff, but do you remember his stuff like in the 90s when he was doing like X-Mutants and stuff like that? Not really, no. Okay. Well, it, it, he was a great artist, but it looked sort of 90s, but not in a horrible way. It wasn't like crazy extreme, but you look at it and you're like, okay, yeah, that's 90s. And that's how Kevin J. West was. It's like you look at it and go, okay, yeah, that's 90s. But it wasn't horrible. I liked him. I liked his stuff. Now, this is actually his very first work for DC, this entry right here, which is sort of interesting. Uh, so if you don't like it, just know that it gets better from here. Okay. Um, so what happened was, yes, uh, the Mist fought, of course, the classic Starman quite a bit. And then he comes to the modern age, and it's, it, was, it was an interesting story. I, I'm, I'm very partial to this because what he does is uh, you know, the, the, the real Starman um, – uh, what's his name? Jack Knight. No, no. Ted Knight. Oh, Ted Knight. Oh, yep. yeah. Ted Knight is off with the JSA in, in, in Ragnarok and Valhalla and all that stuff, right? And so David Knight, his son, has decided to take up the mantle of being Starman, and he's over in Europe sort of training. Well, the Mist stumbles across this. He's like, whoa, no way. My enemy's son? Oh, I'm totally getting in on this. And he pretends to be like a trainer, and he starts training David. And the whole intention is to basically kill him uh, and hurt his old enemy by killing his son. It's, it's a clever plot. So they come to America and they find out, oh, there's a new guy who's taken on the Starman name, Will Payton. And so David, uh, under the influence of, of the mist, basically kind of drives David crazy. And David calls out Will Payton going, I'm Starman. I have the legacy of Starman. You can't take the name. And Will Payton's all like, 
dude, I didn't even know there was a Golden Age Starman. I'm sorry. My bad. And they end up having a big fight. And the Mist reveals himself and says he's now called Nimbus, of course, because in the 90s. And uh, for me, the reason why it's important to me is because this brought me back to superhero comics. You know, you often teased me because I tell you this story about how I, I went to the Darkity Dark comics. I'm like, oh, I only read Sandman and Doom Patrol now. I don't read superhero comics anymore. You know, I, I was like that. And I read the, you know, I read like Justice League and Firestorm or whatever. But uh, this comic, this Starman comic, I saw the classic Starman on the cover, and I was like, oh, I missed the JSA. I picked it up, and from then on, I was back in full bore with superhero comics. And so this, I, I even though it's goofy, uh, it has a special place in my heart. Well, that's good. Good. Yeah. Glad to hear. That was, that was a lot of information. I'm yes, sorry. Yes, it was. Um, yes, it was. Nimbus appeared about nine months prior to this in the Starman comic, and uh, if you want more on Starman, you should check out the Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour by our friend uh, Aaron Headmoss, or you can check out on the Supermates podcast, they do a segment called Starman Chronicles, and uh, at some point they may end up getting to uh, David Knight specifically, because, oh, actually they have talked about David Knight, because he's part of the James Robinson Starman story. I will say, we did talk about the mist in that JLA 195 to 197 mm-hmm. thing, and that yep. was really cool. That was great. Well, he was threatening in there. It was yeah, scary. he was really cool. Did you uh, mention Robert Greenberger wrote this text? No, I did not. I okay. did not. Um, next up is Patrick Man from Swamp Thing. I first appeared in Swamp Thing number two. The text is by Andy Mangles, and the art is by Tom Taggart, <laughs> uh, who I think probably is more famous for doing uh, Dandy the Street. Uh, I think that listing one, I think when we get to it, because it, Tom Taggart was like a mixed media, mm-hmm. multimedia artist. And this, I don't, exa- I think this Patrick Mann piece is actually a three dimensional piece that it was photographed. Uh, that was like, because I think like what we're seeing is the Patrick Mann and the, 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 uh, kind of like a tree, the dead tree that he's walking along is, I believe a separate layer than the moon that we see behind him. And then it was photographed. We can see where it's pasted under the black. Definitely. Right. right. You can definitely see the, cut yeah, out. Yeah. I, I thought it might be either a woodcut or just a, pe- a pencil drawing that they've cut out, but you think it might be a three dimensional thing. Wow. I don't know if it's three, maybe not so much three dimensional, although he did do stuff like that, but I'm just thinking that the, the piece of the Patrick man is a separate piece from the moon behind yeah. it. And it was got some level of dimension. Now the it's inset, mixed, it's definitely mixed media. You're right. Yeah. And the inset on the back of him and then the, 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 uh, the bottom panel, those are looking woodcut looking things. I mean, they're mm-hmm. really horrific and they're in black and white. And I got to give DC credit for giving this to Tom Taggart because this is a very unusual style. And he's basically, uh, you know, he is basically Frankenstein. Man. He's Frankenstein. I mean, yeah. really, essentially. And I remember, and I talked about this in an episode of FW Presents, that they did this issue of Swamp Thing number two as a video comic, uh, my my beloved video comic show, which I remember scared the living crap out of me because it was, <laughs> you know, it's a really horrendous story about a guy that's this dead, you know, he's this shambling corpse walking around, and yet they did it as a as a audio comic for a kid show. You know, it's really pretty horrifying. What's interesting about this character is that he doesn't have a lot of appearances. No. Like he really, but because he was in Swamp Thing number two, and it's so beloved, and everyone loves Frankenstein, he gets trotted out for every single who's who. Like right. he's always in who's who. Everyone remembers him because also the who's who entries are usually really, really amazing. Steve Bissett drew the uh, first. Yeah. 
Yeah. And the other important thing to remember is he is Abigail Arcane's dad. That's or at least right. he was before he was turned into Frankenstein. Right. So yeah, it's uh it's uh it's pretty creepy. So it's it's a great one. And Tom Tagger, by the way, had done one issue of Swamp. He did a, a Swamp Thing cover. So right. he was already associated with the book, so it's probably part of the reason he got this. And of course you get the deceased stamp and you got the created by credit and everything like that. He had appeared uh it'd been about two years since anyone had seen him, but again he's he's Patrick Man, he's gonna show up. Now Swamp Thing. So obviously, if you want more in Swamp Thing, check out the TV show uh, that Rob so rudely dismissed earlier. Dude, I have watched the first four episodes, I think it is. I freaking love that show. Like, I, I enjoyed the Titans for what it was. I had criticisms of it. I tried to watch Doom Patrol. Not really my cup of tea, even though I liked the comic. Dude, this Swamp Thing TV show is, like, exactly what I want from a Swamp Thing TV show. It is scary as hell. It is graphic and creepy and makes your skin crawl. And, oh, uh, it's so stinking good. And it does not deserve to be canceled. It's so angering as I watch it that it got canceled. Oh, my gosh. But uh, so it, so whenever it comes out on you know whether it's I know you're not on the DC app but if it comes out on like DVD or streaming somewhere else or something like that you got to check it out it's so good. All right, fair enough. Uh, it does mention this listing that the Patrick man's head has been separated from his body and the head has not yet been found. Yikes! So that's fun. Uh, oh, and then also eyes, one blue, one missing. So that's fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's a it's a it's a great listing. Uh, next up, here's our marquee character, Robin. Uh, the Timothy Drake Robin first appeared in Batman number 436 and then as Robin in Batman 457. And yes, the background color is slightly different than the one we see on the cover a la Hawkman a few issues ago. We also like uh, his sleeves and his legs. Like there's some gradients going on there that's not there on the cover. It's almost like uh, if you've heard of people doing coloring and they, they say they, they did they, they colored the flats. Yeah. And then someone comes behind and does all the highlights and the shines and the gradients and stuff. It's like the covers, the flats, and this is the more you know impressive col- digital coloring. So it's yeah, by Tom Lytle, Tom Lyle, Bob Smith, and coloring by Anthony Tolan. So Tim Drake, the single best Robin of all times. Uh, fight me again if you will. Now Tom Lyle, not. My favorite Robin artist, he's good. He's really good. Like the Robin miniseries was really good. I like the inset pictures quite a bit. The front image, not so great, which is kind of sad because he just came off of his five-issue miniseries, which was a wild success. I mean DC could not believe that Robin could be popular. Like they, when, when, when the popularity for this character exploded in Batman, they're like, really? For Robin? And then they're like, they did it in a miniseries. We, we don't really think so. And it did incredibly well. They're like, huh. Well, it's got to be a fluke. So then they do Robin 2, and it's sold even better. <laughs> huh. And they do Robin 3, sold incredibly well. They're like, really? And so it's like it took a long time to convince DC to give him an ongoing series. But so Tom Lyle did, just did those five issues, which were great. This drawing, I, I don't know any other way to say it, but he looks like a Muppet. It just it, – it didn't come together. I don't know whether Tom was rushed or what, but like the head and the hair and everything and the – the body language, it just doesn't work. It's so disappointing because I love this character. So for me, my premier Tim Drake artists are Tom Grummet first, who drew the ongoing series, then Norm Brayfogle, who drew it in the Batman stuff, and then Tom Lyle. Uh, and that's not a dig against Tom Lyle necessarily because, I mean, he's still in the top three and a bunch of other people have drawn Tom, uh, Tim Drake since then. So 
Um, one of the things I want to talk about is the costume. So this is an absolute fantastic costume upgrade as far as I'm concerned. And, and it had only been seven months since they got this new costume. We always had the traditional, you know, uh, pixie boot Robin up till this point. So seven months ago, you get the, the, the new version. I don't know your feelings on it or not, but the big, the big changes are the pants. You've got the black cape on the outside. You've got the cool R symbol. And as far as I'm concerned, this is one of the few times there was a successful updating of an iconic costume that actually took. Because, you know, how many times has Superman's costume been updated? Like, look, we're updating Superman. And it goes back to the way it was. Right, you know, right. Batman is always some tweaking, but essentially he looks the same. He really does. You know, Wonder Woman go- Wonder Woman's probably had some changes because of the movie. But this one is the first dramatic costume change I can think of that stayed this way. Yeah, that's true. Uh, right. He, I mean, it is a more, it's a more, you know, street fighter. Kind. He's got like the ninja boots. With yeah. the little toes and stuff on them so he can climb more effectively. Yeah, you're right. It is one of the first time, And they darkened everything. I mean, he's got like a black – the cape is reversed colors, yellow on the inside, black on the outside. Uh, yeah, yeah. It is – they realized that they, the, the pixie boot thing just really wasn't – going to stay contemporary. But obviously you can't change it too much because he's got to still look like Robin. So yeah, yeah, you're right. It's sort of funny too that Robin's popularity got boosted even though he had no help from the movies for the first two movies. That's true. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, he was, and then of course Nolan has excluded him entirely from the movies as well. So uh, you know, he you could argue he's not been treated that well by the live action versions because uh, he only he only got Chris O'Donnell. And he only got two movies, and one of them was god awful. So, uh, <laughs> but nevertheless, yeah, I mean, years ago, I mean, Robin always had backup features, and he was in Star Spangled Comics and stuff like that. But the idea that he would ever be have like a successful ongoing series seemed ridiculous for many many years, and then boom, yeah, he took off. So so frustrating is he had this huge successful series. Tim Drake was fantastic as Robin. Everyone lo- loves the costume. So what do they do? They give in every other media, whether it be Batman the Animated Series, whether it be that Batman and Robin movie, whether it be uh, the, the Titans TV series, Dick Grayson is always given Tim Drake's costume. Right. Which frustrates the crap out of me because I'm like, no, that's part of what made Tim special was Batman specifically came to him and said, I'm not going to give you Dick's costume. I'm going to – I don't want you to fill Dick's role. I want you to be your own Robin. So gave him his own costume. And uh, I shouldn't get bent out of shape about it, but I really do because I'm like, no, it's, it's Tim's costume. Why is Dick wearing that? Anyway, and uh, it does really bug the crap out of me that Damien is Robin and Tim Drake's not. Although it's some weird sketchy stuff going on in the Young Justice series by Brian Michael Bendis right now. Uh, It's a good little series, but Tim Drake's Robin again. And it's or he's a Robin. In fact, they go, "Hey, you're Robin." He goes, "Well, I'm one of them." And I'd be fine if there were multiple Robins, but uh, I think he's going to go back to. He's getting. They just announced he's getting his own new identity, which is like, no, just make Tim Drake Robin and be done with it. That's what everybody wants. <laughs> anyway, so at this point, he's uh, he's carrying a staff. Uh, that when he spins it, it whistles, and he's got a sling on it, which is pretty cool. Uh, not a sling on the staff, sorry. He also carries a sling. That was kind of his trademarks. Written by Mark Wade. Obviously, the border's red. And uh, at this point, Batman 465 is on the shelves. And the, so the, the miniseries ended last month. And in fact, this month, one month later, here's how popular it was. The trade paperback was already on the shelves. Wow. And this was in an era where trade paperbacks were not a common thing at all. So you can check out uh, Batman Nightcast for more on Robbie. You can check out Everybody Loves the Drake. And then if you really want, uh, many years ago, Michael Bailey and I sat down on Views in the Longbox and did a series of episodes, maybe one or two episodes, on uh, Batman Year 3 and Lonely Place of Dying, which is all about the introduction of Tim Drake. And so we covered those, which is uh, – I had a great time because, you know, it was me and Michael Bailey. We always have fun. All right. Uh, next up is The Shark. 
Uh, of course, on the on the on the page, it's on the front page. It says the shark, and on the back, it just simply says shark. Uh, <laughs> and probably not an Aquaman villain. He's really more of a Green Lantern villain, though he has tussled with Aquaman. And we even see that on the inside as he's chomping down on Aquaman's arm. Uh, first appeared in Green Lantern number twenty-four from way back in nineteen sixty-three, and he's basically a human. Uh, humanoid body with a big shark head and some fins, and he's really uh, horrific looking. And we see on the inside of him transforming from a shark into kind of a person, and then into this sort of hybrid. And then we see him fighting uh, Green Lantern. Uh, he's, he, he's creepy looking. Uh, he's also kind of goofy he's looking. Doofy he's, got looking. This, he's got this costume on. Uh, so <laughs> he, he looks like there's a period of time in like the Buffy and Angel series. Where they got kind of lazy with the bad guys, and they just have a regular guy, and they slap a mask on him and say he's a demon, and that's what this looks like. It looks like a regular human. Let's slap some fins on him and a silly mask. I just this character does nothing for me. It says at the end that the, he was recruited and reformed by Guy Gardner, uh, which seems strange. Uh, fighting the crisis, right? Yeah. Right for fighting the crisis. Since that time, the shark has been has been free to lie low and scheme, searching for an opportunity to strike back at the Green Lan- at the Green Lantern and the world at large. So, okay, fine. Here's my biggest problem with this. But well, by the way, the art I do like how there's a shark cage. That's I should say Gordon open. Purcell and Joe Rubenstein. Yeah, I like how the shark cage has been ripped open, and clearly the sharks have had a feeding frenzy on some poor human. But um, the, the the biggest at the core of my uh, this the, my problem is that the idea is he gets this weird energy, right, or whatever, that uh, in a matter of minutes takes this tiger shark and causes a bunch of years of evolution, which right. turns him into a humanoid. Well, out of almost every creature on the planet, aren't sharks the ones that have evolved the least? Over the, the centuries, like, because they're a perfect killing machine as they are. They eating machine, need... right, as Hooper yeah. says, yes. Yeah, they didn't need to evolve. And so, like, if he were to evolve, he'd probably just stay the same. But that's just me being nitpicky. So, uh, at this point, I didn't even, I, I looked him up and I'm like, ah, he has all kinds of minor appearances, but nothing really major. So I didn't even bother. And if you want more on the short, go to the Lantern cast or just find something else to do with your life. <laughs> Six... <laughs> wow. Next up is uh, Starfire from the Teen Titans, drawn by Tom. Grumman and Al Vey with a text by Marv Wolfman. She's flying into the sky and she's sort of presenting her logo out. She's like, hey, I'm Starfire. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I, every, you know, I mean, everybody loves Starfire, right? I mean, she's one of the more popular characters in the Titans because she's beautiful to look at, also very positive. In the inset, we see her canoodling a little with uh, Nightwing. Uh, we see her posing because she's a former model. Maybe she's a former model or just a model? Um, uh, I think she's a model sold at this point. Okay, right. It says model. It says occupation: princess of Tamaran, model and adventurer. And then we see her uh, blasting one of the one of those aliens, the Scion. Not the Scion. The, the the goons are not the Scion. Somebody who appeared in Omega Men, and then I don't care about. Right there, right. you go. Um, but anyway, it's a, it's a nice drawing. I mean, it's Tom Grummet. You know, I've, we're all both big fans of Tom Grummet. Were you baiting me by saying everyone likes Starfire? Was that what that was? Uh, no, I was. Boy, okay. really, do you not like Starfire? Well, if you'd listen to any episode where we've ever talked before, uh, I talk about how I, I, I don't like this character. Uh, I feel like there's absolutely no depth to the character. I feel like they created a vapid airhead cheesecake girl in the 80s, and it always bothered me, and she never did anything for me. Now, with that said, put a pencil in Tom Grummet's hand, and things change a bit because this drawing is smoking hot. I'll give you that. I still don't care for the character very much, but the drawing is just damn sexy as hell. And it's super fun, too, because you're right. Like, cause she is doing the presenting like, ta-da! So it, it's a great drawing. It's really exceptional. But the character does nothing for me. In fact, the first time that this character has ever 
held my attention through all the various media of Starfire is in the Titans uh, live-action TV show. That wow. version of Starfire is actually pretty interesting and is and I've engaged with, which may be why I'm being more charitable to this one. One thing that's a little bit odd is it's almost like uh, – Mark – is it Mark Wade that wrote this or – oh, it's Mark Wolfman. Mark Wolfman. Oh, that, might, that makes a little more sense. Mark Wolfman was suffering from writer's block shortly after this. It's almost like he had writer's block in the middle of the entry because like it's telling a story and then he just kind of stops. It's like it almost stopped halfway in the middle of a sentence practically. It's, the entry just stops in a very weird way like he just didn't finish it. Um, but anyway, so uh, Red Border, of course, for heroes. Um, and then um, at this point, New Teen Titans was on issue 76, so we're into the Titans hunt pretty good there. Uh, I I don't think it – no, it hadn't resolved yet. So they're in the middle of Titans Hunt, I believe. And more on Starfire, of course, you can watch the Titans TV show. Again, I like that version quite a bit. You can check out Pop Culture Affidavit, uh, the blog, where Tom talked quite a bit about Titans and his love for that over the years, or the Titan of the Defense podcast. And um, you mentioned the logo. I do love that logo. I'm pretty sure it was used on one of those Titan spotlight issues or something maybe. I think it was in the, the miniseries, the tale, the uh, New Teen Titans miniseries, the mm-hmm. four issues where they spotlight – it was in their yes. mid-80s where they spotlighted on – each of the new characters got a, got an issue. Raven, I think you're right, and Cyborg and stuff. I think that's where they came up with logos for the first time. So, all right, all right. Next up is Thorn, as in Rose and Thorn. Uh, first appeared way back in Lois Lane number one hundred and five, October nineteen seventy. Now, when she got a listing in the previous Who's Who, she was listed under Rose and Thorn because that was mm. the name of the feature was Rose and Thorn because she is a woman who tra- Rose Forest. Who transforms into Thorn, this adventurer, and she doesn't have any memories of being Thorn, so it's really like a Jekyll and Hyde sort of thing. I thought by the fact that she's called just Thorn here, it's drawn by Jason Pearson and Carl Story, by the way, that something had happened to the character recently and that she was no longer Rose which is why she's just called mm. Thorn here. I thought maybe that's why she got a listing. But no, I read the listing, and it just says that Rose has no memory of her being no, – Rose does not know she is the Thorn. Thorn, on the other hand, is quite aware of her gentler sister and eagerly awaits new opportunities to wage her war against crime. So they just don't call her Rose and Thorn anymore maybe because it was confusing or something. But I, th- well, there's no real big change to, to, to instill the uh, difference in the name. No, no, none at all. I, I think what it was is I mean, the, the character has always been just Thorn. Right. Is what it is, right. and her and her alter ego is Rose, and right. so from like a storytelling perspective, it made sense to call it Rose and Thorn. But if you think about it, in the in world perspective, it's not Rose and Thorn; it's right. Thorn or right. you know Rose. And so I think it's just they were trying to simplify who the characters you would know. And at this point, she didn't have her own ongoing story anyway. She hadn't even appeared in five years when this hmm. entry comes up. But in three months from now, she'll start appearing in the Superman books for a while. And so rather than – if it was a backup called Rose and Thorn, they probably would have called it that. But instead, she just is inserted in some of the Superman stories as Thorn. So it makes more sense to have her there. I love the graffiti in the background. There's some funny, funny stuff, you know, like high Yuri, as in the high Michael Right, she's Yuri's in front in of here. a wall, and there's all this graffiti in the background, and there says yep. Matt Wagner, Michael Yuri. right, right. Yep, the Appleseed, which was a big comic back then, if you remember that. Dave Stevens' name is there. There's a lot of fun stuff in there. So I, I kind of dig this. Um, and then, you know, of course, it's tied in with Booster Gold because she appeared more recently in the Booster Gold series of five years ago. And then it's funny, you know, um, Dan Jurgens gave her this knee brace. This, this knee brace on the character. I think he just did it probably because it just artistically looked cool, but it just it, – it caught and it stayed. Like she's got it here again five years later, and they even mentioned specifically the knee brace in yeah, the description, do, yeah. which is kind of funny. She looks a lot uh, like Poison Ivy too. She does. And for me – and this is going to be meaningless for you, Rob. But for me, this art piece of her looks very much kind of like the house style for the Ultraverse books. 
Um, If you read the Ultraverse books, especially a book like Freaks, this art looks very much like the style of what many of the Ultraverse books would eventually end up looking like. So that's that's kind of the the 90s sense I get from this. So um, if you want more on Thorne, there's not a lot of places to go. Probably the best place would be maybe the Silver and Gold podcast where they're covering the Booster Gold series there. Or you can check out Boosterific.com. All right. Uh, next up is Velvet Tiger, who first appeared <laughs> in Detective Comics number 518. Uh, she appeared with Hawk and Dove. We see her fighting Batgirl. She's a villain. Uh, I drawn by uh, Greg Guler. I know mm-hmm. nothing about this character <laughs> at all, except I love the, co- the costume. I, it, I mean, look, I knew intrinsically that she is not a character from the 60s because I just know. But man, she looked like she she looks like one of the villains that would have been introduced on the Batman TV series. Oh, she totally and, does. And then, and then made her way into the comic books. I mean, it is the most absurd costume. She has got um, this big mane of orange hair. She's in a tiger suit with uh, this white piping on the boots and her collar, and then she's got actually claw marks on her face. And I mean, it's just an absurd costume. It just looks yes. so silly, but I love it. I mean, again, this is Tolly's third season of the Batman TV series. You're not wrong. You're absolutely not wrong. Uh, you're lucky to have a Velvet Tiger authority right here on the show with you, believe it or not, because I did an episode of Backworld Oracle with Stella four years ago, four years ago, covering some of her appearances because Velvet Tiger is a Backworld villain. And she appeared in some issues of Hawk and Dove, which uh, and so did Oracle. So Stella asked me to come on there and do it, uh, the, the stories with her. And so I had to get up to speed on Velvet Tiger. This is some creepy, creepy crap, all right? So you see how, like, I'll just say it. She's hot, right? I mean, she's, she's pretty sexy there. She's designed to be, uh, it gets your attention sexually. I think that's fair to say, right? Yeah, she's in a skin-tight costume, which is a pu- yep. beautiful woman, right, yeah. A lot of cleavage, tigers, the, the, the stripes and the tigers are pointed in certain directions to get your attention. Anyway, reality is, she's a 10-year-old girl. That is seriously effed up. So what's going on here is she's a 10-year-old girl who has learned to step into these temporal pockets. So she, she steps into like, you know, steps out of time essentially and lives in another dimension, if you will, for there for a while. So she's actually aging. So she, so her body and her, she has lived 20 something years, but from a calendar, you know, in our world, she's only 10 years old. So it's seriously creepy. She's also very immature. So very, very messed up. Totally not a power set you would expect from a character that looks like this. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, uh, Barbara Kiesel uh, was writing Hawk and Dove at this point when they introduced all this, and it's it's very much a head-scratcher. I'm sure Ange is already furiously pounding away at his keyboard defending her appearances in Hawk and Dove, but uh, it, it, she's not I, anyone's favorite character. She, she had um, six appearances before this, uh, as, as recently as the month before this in, in, in Hawk and Dove. She only has two more, and that's it. And then she resurfaces later in the New 52 and Rebirth era, and that is uh, that is about all she wrote for her. This entry is written by Robert Greenberger. Of course, your border is black. And um, her powers are, you know, again, she has these pockets of time she can step through. She's very cunning. She's very ruthless. She's very manipulative. She screwed up her brother in the head horribly. And um, so, yeah. Anyway, so for more, check out Background Oracle episode 101 from four years ago where Stella – poor Stella was just getting to know me at that time too. She didn't really know what she'd gotten into having me on the show, I think. Uh, she Have reported- any of us? Right. I, I think she actually made a, a game out of how many times I said somebody was hot on that podcast. Uh, so, yeah, definitely check that out. 
<laughs> right. Uh, next up is Wave Rider exclamation mark uh, drawn by Dan Jurgens. And look, okay, I never read this series Armageddon two thousand one. Really? Uh, no, oh, wow. yeah, I never read this. Uh, I think he just looks. I think he looks goofy. But this drawing by Jurgens and then colored by Anthony Tolan is fantastic. I yes, think it's it is one of the best listings. In the book, it's so exciting looking. It's him in front of this sort of time portal, and he's uh, all the effects are jumping out of the camera. It is a really great. I really like when Dan Jurgens inks himself. I don't think mm-hmm. he gets to do that much of it, but he has kind of slightly a slightly scratchy style. It's I'm not going to go so far and say it's like Klaus Janssen. It's not that far, but it's it's more sca- scratchy than you would think because he typically doesn't ink himself. And I love the colors on it and the effect. I mean, it's like. This is a really great looking drawing of a character that I think is just kind of eh. But man, the, the <laughs> listing is the, the the drawing is outstanding. So you don't like a guy uh, with yellow who has uh, like f- energy pouring out of his head? He does oh, look a lot like Firestar. I, I like I said, <laughs> I don't know anything about the character. He was created by That's Archie fine. Goodwin and Dan Jurgens, which is why Dan Jurgens drew him. Uh, and we see him in the in the inset putting the whammy on Batman, which is cool. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, but the listing is killer. Yeah, it's great. And I like the logo too, the Wave Rider logo, where yeah, it's even got yeah, like the wave yeah. pulse going through the word wave. So, so the gist of this character, and in th- this is an example I said at the top of the show, as far as stuff being timely, um, the Armageddon 2001 crossover, what it was is there was a, a, an issue number one, then the story carried throughout all the DC annuals that summer, and at the end of the summer, it ended with Armageddon 2001 number two. That's how the story worked. And Armageddon 2001 had just come out a month ago. So literally, this character is appearing in Who's Who, and his story's not over yet. Because they're right in the, you know, they barely started this Armageddon 2001 story arc, and yet they've got him here in the book to help promote it, which is actually pretty, pretty smart on their part. The gist of it is, he is from the future, and in the future, the world is ruled, ruled by this bad guy named Monarch. And yeah, you've all probably heard of Monarch in the, in the hell that comes out of this series, but anyway, Monarch's this bad guy in the future. Well, Wave Rider knows that Monarch used to be a hero. And it all goes wrong in the year 2001. Something changed in the hero that, where the hero turned into a villain and eventually became Monarch. So Wave Rider comes back in time to try and stop him from becoming Monarch. So he goes around to all these heroes in 1999. He goes back 10 years before. So he goes to 1999, and he touches all these heroes. Like you see him putting the whammy on Batman. What he's doing is every time he touches them, he sees their potential future. And so you get a story that's supposed to be 10 years in Batman's future or 10 years in Superman's future or 10 years in the Justice League's future or whatever. So you see what happens to these characters, and he's trying to figure out who becomes – who turns evil and why and who eventually becomes monarch so he can stop it from happening. And it's an interesting story that the final solution to who monarch was going to be – do you, you know the story who monarch was supposed to be? No. Monarch was supposed to be Captain Adam. That was a shocker. Sorry. Spoilers, everybody. And the last minute, word got out. Everybody found out it was going to be Captain Adam. Even I knew it was going to be Captain Adam. I'd heard just on the street. I don't know. Maybe I read it in a bathroom somewhere. But uh, Captain Adam was going to be revealed as Monarch. So at the last minute, DC uh, did a heel turn and redid issue number two and changed it at the end of the summer where Hawk turns into Monarch, which made no sense whatsoever in the story at all. And to this day, it, it, it bothers everyone that Monarch became Hawk. It, it took Hawk off the table for many, many years. Uh, it left Captain Adam sort of floundering because he was supposed to go off and become Monarch. And then so he – they didn't know what to do with that character for a long time. It really kind of screwed up a lot of stuff. In fact, you and I – you probably don't even remember this. You and I interviewed Dan Jurgens. Um, of course I remember that. Well, like yeah. three or four times. Well, during one of the lightning rounds – remember we used to do lightning rounds when yes. we were asking questions? Yes, yes. One of the lightning round questions was, 
in Armageddon 2001, who was Monarch really supposed to be? And Dan very resignedly goes, ah, Captain Adam. And and because he knew too, I mean, everyone knows it. So yes, uh, this is a cool story, uh, and Wave Rider looks great, and it was a great setup, and they screwed the pooch in the last at the at the the goal line. So it was uh, very unfortunate. Hmm. And so uh, yeah, and and Monarch has a twisted, messed up history uh, still to this day. They can't get that right. So anyway, if you want more on Armageddon two thousand one, which is really a fun series, it really I mean forget forgetting the ending, it's a really good series. It's a lot of fun. It's basically what ifs or Elseworlds because you get to see like what Superman's future going to be in 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 ten years. Well, they did it like four times, I want to say, or maybe it was two times. They did it multiple times because Superman had multiple annuals, and so you get to see multiple versions of what Superman's future might be. Like one of them is President of the United States. You know, I. I would prefer that to the current one. So, um, so for more on uh, Armageddon 2001, you can check out the Head Speaks podcast. He was going through the Armageddon 2001 series there. Or there was a blog by everybody. Clinton Robinson uh, did a, a great uh, blog about the Armageddon 2001 series as well. I can't believe this, but uh, you've made me excited to get the Wild Dog. I, you weren't interested in the, any of that, really? No. Oh my no. gosh! All uh, right, yeah, okay. Should, so, I should talk. I should talk about the Legion more. Would that make? Oh, it that would be good. So anyway, okay. The final listing in this book is Wild Dog again. Everybody's favorite, uh, drawn by uh, Terry Beatty. Uh, he's created by Max Allen Collins and Terry Beatty. Like this, ca- I never. I read the miniseries, the first one. I never had any real interest in this. I guess even at this point, he was appearing in Action Comics Weekly, which is why he's getting a listing two, again. Two years before this, he appeared in Action Comics Weekly. Really? Was that? Yeah. Oh my God, yeah. Jesus. He's only, anyway, got four, he's only got four more appearances, and that's as, it. As drawn by Ter- – but I love Terry Beatty's artwork. Sure, like It's sure. real simple. Almost, again, I, I, I tend to call a lot of artists Alex Toth-like. I have need to come up with another metaphor uh, but or simile or whatever it is or just another artist. But nevertheless, <laughs> I like Terry Beatty's work. It's very simple. And one of the things I, I really do like, and it's, it's a cheat. It's a cheat, but it's a good cheat. Is on the insets, we see him without his mask, he's, his, he's a mechanic, and then we see him with the wild dog. And then the third inset is just a shot of his logo mm-hmm. as a solo thing, which I really just kind of like. To me, it's very iconic. I almost wish they had done that for all the characters in some way, having like, uh. a logo. That's kind of a cool thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, the whole bit is that he's a cheap jack superhero. He's Punisher, but he's Punisher on a budget. Because he's just yeah. he's throwing together his costume. He's got a he's got a hockey mask like Jason Voorhees, and he's got this tunic, and then he's got the camo pants, and he's in the machine gun. But I mean, again, the character not great, but boy, I love the listing. The artwork is just fantastic. Well, the real gimmick of Wild Dog was the first miniseries was who was he? Because right. throughout the whole first four issues, you're, they lead you to all these different characters, and he could be any of them. And it's not until the final issue you find out who Wild Dog is. He turned out that he was Captain Adam. It was Captain Adam. That's exactly right. Well played. You were paying attention. Um, and unfortunately, once they reveal the big mystery, is there really that much left to a Punisher wannabe? Eh, not really. Right, yeah. You know, they were doing that in Deathstroke already, so, you know, uh, I don't know that it was that interesting. So, yeah, he appeared and had a whole lot of appearances that didn't really go anywhere. And, boy, Jay, you know, Jay Jones is just losing his crap right now as we're talking about this because he does a podcast called Wild Pod, which is all about wild dogs. So, there you go. But uh, <laughs> Proving every character crazy. will have a podcast for 15 minutes. Well, here's the other crazy thing. This guy's on Arrow. He's like a real. Isn't that amazing? He's a regular. A regular. Um, and anyway, the, the best place. So, okay. So if you want more on, on wild dog, yes, check out the arrow series, check out the wild, uh, uh, wild pod podcast. The single best place for more on wild dog though, is go hang out 
and have a beer or waffles. I did waffles uh, with Keith G. Baker, and he might wear his custom-made wild dog hat, baseball cap, which is awesome. It's super cool. So uh, that's that's pretty cool. Anyway, uh, written by the patron saint of the Nightcast podcast, Max Allen Collins. Here <laughs> was. And <laughs> the border is red. And, uh, yeah, four more appearances after this, and that's it. And then he – apparently, I guess he shows up in the Young Animal stuff very recently. In the oh, Reaper wow. Okay. I don't really know if it's the same version of Wild Dog or – I don't know. I mean they had so much retro stuff in there, I have to imagine. But, yeah. So that's it. Wow, what an ending. <laughs> All right. Well, I ask you, Rob. Yes. In what I have termed the most lackluster issue of Who's Who, terribly sorry, folks. Uh, I saved that for the end. Th- this this issue was not firing on all thrusters for me. I got excited about certain stuff, but I think I was more excited about the stories than the entries themselves. So, Rob, as, as I ask you every episode, who, what are some of your favorite entries from this issue? I mean, again, just going by the artwork, I really do like the Angel and the Ape one. Uh, I really the Draga, of course. Hmm. Uh, he's really great. Um, the Flash one is really good. I like that. Oh, okay. very classic. A classic. Uh, maybe not Johnny Thunder. Like, I like the character, but maybe that's not one of, like, the best ones. Uh, the, not so much. Patrick Man, maybe. Uh, but uh, I, like, I really like the Wave Rider, Wave Rider and Wild Dog for two characters that don't <laughs> do, any, do anything for me. The artwork is terrific. Okay. Well, I, I went on a rant about Starfire, right? About how I don't like Starfire. So you know this has to be a lackluster issue. Starfire is on my list of best entries. So, mm. um, But Tom Grummet really did knock it out of the park. I mean, she, it looks great. It's super fun. Again, sexy as hell. Uh, and the, the best entry, of course, of the book has to go to Firestorm. I mean, it's just a gorgeous, mm-hmm. gorgeous piece. Uh, I think the Kilgore entry is actually pretty cool. I love the TV monitors behind him, and the, and the coloring is really, really neat. The Patchwork Man, of course, we mentioned is great. Uh, and then I have Wave Rider on my list as well yeah that's that's my whole list of awesome entries so that's gonna do it Oof! all right uh that's another one of the books and just further down the hill according to rob at this point (laughs) so we're gonna take a quick quick podcast promo break and when we come back we're gonna do your listener feedback from the last episode of who's who the world's strongest hero the warrior from a hidden island the master of super speed the wielder of the weapon from beyond the stars. The champion of the seven seas. They are the only ones standing before a world beyond the brink of collapse. Their mission, abolish war and crime, eliminate poverty and hunger, clean the environment, cure disease, even stop death itself. They promise within a year to make the world a utopia, no matter how many lines they might need to cross. Coming soon to the Pulp to Pixel Network, the Squadron Supreme Cast, an exploration of Mark Gruenwald's epic 1985 Squadron Supreme miniseries, a look at the heroes, the villains, the fine lines separating them, and how this miniseries continues to play an influence in mainstream superhero comics. Uh, what's that stand for? Robin. Hello, everyone. This is Rob Myers, and I'd like to invite you to check out my podcast called Robin. Everyone loves the Drake. Rob, are you going to take out the trash? Uh, I'm right in the middle of uh, recording a, an ad for my, my podcast. I'll, I'll do it in just a little bit, okay? Sorry to interrupt. Boy Wonder time. Boy Wonder? I'm all man, lady. Uh, Rob? 
Uh, okay, where was I? That's right. My podcast, Robin, Everyone Loves a Drake. It'll be hosted over at thebatmanuniverse.net. I'll be covering Tim Drake's origin story from the very beginning, starting with Tim's first appearance in Batman 436, also known as Batman Year 3, and hopefully going all the way through the Robin ongoing series, starting with issue 1 and going all the way to issue 183. 183 issues? Wow. Well, it's a good thing, because everyone loves the Drake. You don't like the Drake? I hate the Drake. I love the Drake. How could you not like the Drake? Who's the Drake? Who's the Drake? The Drake is good. And we're back for Who's Who, How's, and Why's, which is your feedback from the last episode. Specifically, we're talking about Who's Who in the DC Universe feedback from uh, issue number nine. We're going to be pulling your comments from our website. What's that website, Rob? Fireandwaterpodcast.com. Absolutely. Now remember, folks, be sure if you want to be included in this feedback, go to our website and leave your comment there or iTunes reviews or send us an email. We're not going to be pulling from social media. Uh, it just got to be a, too much to keep track of, and we've already got about a 30-page document here mm-hmm. of feedback from you guys. So um, so that just kind of helps us narrow it down. So, Rob, who's the first feedback from? All right, we got a comment from Robert Ward, and he starts off with, I'm disappointed. I looked at the gallery before you got to the image and was really looking forward to you tearing apart the Vicky Vale piece. I don't like it at all, and then it's definitely an upskirt shot. Sorry, Robert. I we just went with what I really like Mark Hempel, uh, and yes, it is kind of an upskirt shot. But to me, it's so stylized that it just didn't. It made it wasn't skeevy to me. So I'm sorry you were disappointed that we both kind of liked it. Yeah, we actually got a lot of feedback from folks that didn't care for that image. Uh, well, we got feedback on both sides, I would say, that didn't, didn't. But yeah, I was surprised because I, to me, I just thought it was amazing. And um, and yes, it is technically upskirt, but it's not, uh, you know, it's skeevy's the word, you're right. So I'm just repeating what you said. So there we go. Um, all right, next comment comes from Sean Walsh, and he says, Calabac by Mike Paraback. Wow, I had forgotten this happened. And looking at it, it's also sad to realize that the most of the new gods we ever got out of him were wood carvings in this wonderful who's who splash page hmm yeah that would have been great to see a who's who i mean uh, a new god series by him oh my gosh now i I found this very interesting he said regarding calabac i've always found it curious that he was the product of a loving union and yet he was despised by his father well his brother orion was the product of a union forced upon both the mother and the father and not one of love whatsoever and their father saw him as the heir and his legacy that's really interesting. I never thought about the fact that yeah, Calabac came from Darkseid's true love, um, <laughs> which is so weird that he would treat his son that way. So strange. And he said, regarding uh, the five-year-later Legion, he says, I feel like this area of the Legion was possibly a way to address the silver aginess of the Legion of Superheroes at that point. So much of what stood out about them before the five-year-later jump was hidden behind big blue and white jackets and dense nine-panel pages and real names instead of code names. In a way, it reminds me of the leather jacket era of the Avengers. Giffen's five-year-later Legion was like trying to hide them in plain sight, possibly for the sake of having them look and feel like cool new heroes of the early 90s. Well, it's far from my favorite Legion era. I've always appreciated that the stories were still quite good. You know, that that makes a good point. It's sort of like uh, saying that Giffen was trying to make them cool heroes from the 90s. Eh, I think he might be onto something there. 
Then, uh, and by the way, we should say we're just pulling bits and pieces of your comments again, because like I said, it's a 30 page document. We can't read all of this. There's absolutely no way. So we just try to pick out some points that we thought might be interesting to discuss. Uh, up next is Dr. Ange, our buddy from the Supergirl blog, com- uh, comic box commentary, also from the Legion Super Bloggers. Now he talks about Dirk Morgana, which is, uh, which was Sunboy, who Rob had some mean things to say about last time. He says, poor Sunboy. Uh, I could just say that about entering any entry last time, actually. Rob had mean things to say. Anyway, poor Sunboy. He really becomes the face of complicity in five years later, knowingly working for the Dominion in an effort to keep some order, but also because they keep his hedonistic ways satisfied. The end of his tale is really one of the saddest in the book, and it's odd that with his semi-villainous take in that book that he gets such a Fabio-type picture. Hmm, that's a good point. They do make him look out to be like, you know, cool, cool guy, and yet, yeah, he was, he was a horrible dude in that series. <laughs> Then Firehawk, he goes, yes, this is a little more than a pinup, but what a pinup. I'm surprised this got a little bit of a pass from you both. Yeah, I'm a little ashamed that we didn't we didn't cheer up the Firehawk picture as much as we should have last time. But, yep, you know, it is what it is. Hmm. All right. Uh, Hugo Strange, uh, the Engelhart Rogers stuff is brilliant, and the ghost scene that Rob describes is in the Laughing Fish story. I think the Minich uh, Gul- Gulis... Why did I – Galassi. Uh, the Menich the Men- screwed up me saying Galassi. The Menich Galassi storyline in Legends of the Dark Knight had just been released and was lauded at the time for reintroducing Strange. He's definitely a weird dude in that story, so the mannequin stuff is on the money. I always <laughs> want more studies, stories from him because I think psychologically breaking down the Batman is a better story than trying to beat the snot out of him. Interesting. Well, they use that a lot. I mean, that's where you get like the cult did the same thing and uh, the Bane story in Nightfall was kind of the same thing. Huh, interesting. Uh, then he goes about Misa or Missa. I can't say that right, but the White Witch in the last entry was drawn by Esteban Morato. We both went on and on about how gorgeous and sexy it was. He says, okay, this is my favorite and least favorite entry of the book. First off, it's gorgeous. Uh, Misa looks great and sexy, rather cheeky, as she lounges on her mystic sanctum. Having Esteban Moroto draw her was inspired. But hmm. in the five-year-later book, uh, Misa had just been pulled out of a horribly abusive relationship with Mordru. She had married him to try and keep his evil intentions quelled, but he threw her in his harem. She was verbally, physically, and hinted at sexually abused by him. She's a broken person when the Legion rescues her, and it takes her a long time to center herself and heal. So having her in this comic, in the, uh, having her in a come-hither pose, knowing that about her, felt a little icky at the time. That's a very good point. And he's not the only person to make that point in in uh, the comments. So, yeah, uh, I had forgotten about that. And I knew she had gone through a, a very hard time, but I didn't put together that she hadn't put herself back together yet at this point. So, yeah. Hmm. All right. Thank you, Ange. Great points. All right. Uh, Damian Whiter writes in, and he says, regarding Black Canary, I'm amazed that this is one of your favorite entries. I always felt it was missing something. It really looks like Dick Giordano inked it on his lunch break. It is great, though, seeing the return of the Serpent. Well, I mean, you know, Dick Giordano may have inked it during his, uh, during his lunch break, but that's how good Dick Giordano was. It would probably still look pretty good. <laughs> and, hey, you know, to each his own. I love that Black yeah, Canary. Yeah, I so. liked it a lot. So uh, the thing is regarding Blue Devil, because I had a lot to say about the Blue Devil entry last time, because Linda Medley was always a star, and she does a great job in this front image. I know what Shag means about there being something holding it back. It might just be the coloring, which, apart from the background, is oddly flat. I remember the time every JLI letter column would feature a plea for Blue Devil to join, and I thought his entry being drawn by one of the JLI artists was a sign he was joining. Well, yes, he's right. In the JLI letter columns, everyone was pleading for Blue Devil to join the league, and then eventually... So by the time they did it, they didn't have the right writer on the book, and it went horribly, horribly wrong. 
then he goes on to talk about Dr. Fate. He goes, I love the Bill Mester Loeb's run, and I thought uh, Vince Giarno did a great job of redesigning Fate minimally but effectively. I must agree that the pose is not very Inza. It's a little too sexy, and the images on the reverse were much more indicative of the run. <laughs> All right. And then about Kilowog, because I'm sure this entry is by um, – I'm sorry, I'm sure this entry is by Larry Stroman and Scott Hanna because they were due to do the Dark Stars ongoing. I think they managed three issues before Stroman went over to Image. Yes, you're absolutely correct about that, and we'll talk more about that later. And then he says Roxas. This is interesting. Roxas, which was a Legion of Superheroes villain. He says, I have real problems with the five-year-later Roxas that I didn't have at the time of the issue. As a camp gay man, I have come to see the femme-coding of villains as a real problem in comics. Making a male character feminine is just a shortcut to making him sinister and threatening in pop culture, which is one of the ways that our culture is inherently homophobic. I agree that the story where Jan refuses to murder Roxas in revenge is a great character beat for him, but I wish it could have been done without having to present a psychopath murderer as a man in lipstick. You know, that's really interesting, Damien. I hadn't thought about that. I mean, Roxas is a very disturbing character, and he looks super freaky-deaky. And the lipstick thing is a good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. I I also think they were doing – and this will come up later in the comments. I think they were trying to do – really accentuate his lips to try him be sort of like the 30th century Joker. I think that was part of the thing. But you make a good point about that. That is usually a shortcut in comics for a crazy person, and I can see why that – yeah, that's an issue. Hmm. Yeah, that's a whole uh, angle that that obviously for, you know, both of us from our background just we just don't have any knowledge of that. So I'm really glad Damien pointed it out because after 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 I read it, I was like, oh my god, yeah, of course. But it just did not occur to me when we were talking about it. Well, yeah, I mean that happens all the time. If, if you're not you know invest in a certain area of the world and someone brings something to your attention, it's a lot of times like you know the old V8 slap in the head, like wow, how did I not see that before yeah. now? So yep. yeah. Uh, about Deathstroke the Terminator. He goes, look on the bright side. If it wasn't for Deathstroke getting uh, Jericho's throat cut, we'd have, we'd have been able to hear his poetry. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, he goes, about Vicky Vale. He goes, this is uh, Vicky Vale. Vicky Vale. Uh, this is my favorite entry, and not just because I'm a Prince fan. I know uh, that it is an upskirt shot, but it doesn't feel exploitive because of the style of art. Right, is exactly. Uh, Hempel is a genius at framing things dynamically. This may be the best coloring job in the loose lease of who's who. Hmm. Interesting. I'll have to go back and look at the coloring. Uh, thank you, Damien. Then we heard from Chris Franklin from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Does shows such as the JLU cast, Superman Movie Minute, and more, and apparently writes letters into comic books. <laughs> That's right. Uh, little Chris Franklin wrote, uh, Dr. Fate, I really like this piece, despite the weird boobs that Shag pointed out, which amazes me because I really dislike Vince Guarano's later work on DC books, like the post-Zero Hour Manhunter, Black. Boy, Chris, you are not wrong there. Uh, the, the, the Dr. Fate stuff's okay, but yeah, it gets crazier later by the, that artist does some crazy stuff. He says, uh, regarding the Legion of Superheroes, I feel like this looks like a bunch of characters who are made of silly putty and they were put in a NASA centrifuge. Everyone's head is so wide and squished. I really dislike this period of Giffen's art almost as much as his period aping that European artist in the late eighties. Uh, and great points on the whole superheroes angle, Rob. Thank you very much, Chris. I knew I liked you. Um, I will say this, I will say this the other day i actually read a legion of superheroes comic for pleasure did. I saw that. in yeah. theory in theory um it was a comic book i bought on ebay and the seller just threw in a free comic and it happened to be a legion of superheroes comic it was number 21 of the the baxter series and i was like oh wow this might be like a meat cute maybe this will be the legion comic that turns me into a fan and i'll have a great story no 
No, uh, I really disliked it. Uh, and, and everyone on Twitter was like, first of all, they were worried about my sanity or the fact that somebody had hacked my account. Uh, but, but they were also saying that, that that issue was a particularly bad one to start on. And I'm like, well, you know, okay, I, you know, I didn't, I, I, I tried my best. But the thing that really killed it for me was Giffen's artwork was the nine panels, nine panels. Not to me, it like forcing everything, forcing all the action until the very last page, which was that shot of Lobo, but forcing every single action into that nine panel grid for 16 to 17 pages. To me, it's like putting on a song and then having Giffen dunk your head underwater and expecting the song to sound the same. Like it's just, he's, he's, he's putting this layer over it to me that really dulled it down. And so I, I just, uh, yeah, it just did not work for me at all. But I tried. I tried. Hey, we appreciate it. Everyone's got different tastes. The The Quiet Darkness is not my favorite part of that series either. So I can see that. Um, it's not the one with all the furball stuff, is it? Yeah, furball. Yeah, oh, they run and they, yeah, they meet. They run, these two women are in this underground cave and they run oh, yeah, into yeah. furball. Yeah. So I, mean, I like that part of it, but overall, yeah, the the quiet darkness is is, a, is not the greatest pill. And then they put Lobo in it, which is like ugh. But um, yeah, oh, well, I'm sorry you didn't have a great experience. No, Hopefully another time, good. or maybe you'll finally wake up and have some taste. Maybe it, no, probably not. Uh, David Ace Gutierrez uh, writes in. He says uh, regarding says Shag and my brother. First off, I can't ever replace Robin, Mr. and Mrs. K's eyes. They love their son. That said, I know I'm a favorite. Who wouldn't love this Poonam, aka mine? Uh, he says, now for the show, glad the roughest issue for Rob is over and done with. See? All downhill from here. I have a mixed reaction to the five-year Legion. On one hand, it was the only version of the Legion that interested me until the Abnet Landing Copial era. On the other, Rob is very correct. Are these superheroes? I get what Giffen was trying here, and I like it, but I do wonder if it goes against the entire premise of the Legion of Superheroes. It's a slightly tamer version of what Rick Veach does with his Max Immortal and Brad Pack. At their heart, these are characters and stories created for kids and tweens, and I have to wonder if maturing them cuts out the core of these characters and ideas. It's like the Titan series on the DCU app. Is this really the kind of hero you want to watch? I know what vigilantes would be like in real life, total douches on a power trip. So is that what these comics and shows totally go, go for, should go for tonally? Rant over. A um, couple of comments on that. First off, uh, we should give David his credit. He is the executive producer of Pod Dylan and the owner and operator of the Katana Banana, which you may have heard on the last Who's Who episode. Um, he says rant over. That's not exactly true. That's never true when you talk about David. Well, then he picked up his damn phone and wouldn't stop texting me about the Titan show going, seriously, who is this show for? And, uh, yeah, so he, he, he was really bothered by that. But um, I, I know I'm biased on this. I, I freely admit it because my first really deep exposure to the Titans was the five-year-later stuff. So that's what came first for me. So the, the brightly colored Legion stories don't do much for me. It's the deconstructive stuff that, that does. So All right. I should mention, though, since for the last time that we did a Who's Who, I've now met David. I had never met David oh, to this right. point, but now I've met him. I met him when I was in Los Angeles. So, uh, you are, know. Are you, are, you, are you taking your penicillin? Yeah, you know, a little overrated, I have to say. <laughs> um, so, uh, we, I, I told both Rob and David independently to be prepared to be underwhelmed. So, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we got a comment from Philemon, president of the Jericho Fan Club. Meets Thursday, three third Thursday of each month in the tree fort on the corner of Grant Boulevard and Rosette. Good Lord, these intros you're writing are getting out of I, hand. I will say, since you just murdered it, Philemon, who is the president of the Jericho Fan Club, which meets the third Thursday of each month, put it on your calendar, folks, oh, in the tree fort. Enough. 
In the tree fort down in the corner of Grand Boulevard and Rose Avenue. All right, great. Okay, it was totally worth it. He writes, Rob deserves of all the medals for enduring this snoozer of an issue with a plum. Thank you, Philemon. I appreciate that. He, he, he gets credit for using a plum. So, um, a plum. Okay, a plum. Sorry, I don't, I don't do English. See the little red thing underneath the word? It means it's spelled wrong. Ah, okay, fine. Anyway, uh, Philemon's famous for usually saying absolutely crazy stuff. So, right. so talking about how bad this issue was is a perfect example of Philemon with no taste, right? So then he writes – and this is where I begin to fear for my own sanity because he's going to write several comments that I agree with. Uh, he writes, Blue Devil, am I the only one who prefers this version of Daniel Cassidy, meaning the original? The deal with Neuron and becoming the real devil instead of the guy trapped in a suit is uh, a jump-the-shark moment that the character has never recovered from, recovered from in my opinion. You're dead on right, Philemon. Blue Devil works best in the classic version when he is out having fun and he's in his stuntman version. Now, the later version has its merits in Shadow Pack, but that is not Blue Devil. That is, as Frank rightly identifies later, it's basically just Hellboy. Uh, the, the, the original Blue Devil version is the absolute best version, and we are dead in sync on that one, buddy. In fact, just this weekend, I was at a Comic-Con with a friend who said he'd never bought, read Blue Devil before. I then purchased the first six issues for them and gave them to him right then and there. So it's, they're that good. So anyway, uh, the next comment is about Firehawk. And he goes, I'm just going to surprise people and agree with Shag. I would absolutely love to see Lorraine on a JLA team without Firestorm. There you go. So yeah, That would have been cool. Yeah, so Philemon, buddy, we're, we're in sync this month, and I'm going to check my meds to make, see if I need to make some changes. All right, then we heard from Jeff, Jeff Tischer, and uh, Dev M, we talked quite a bit about him, the Daxamite, last time, and he writes, I mentioned he appeared on the, the show Krypton, he goes, Dev M's appearance on Krypton is about as much in common with the character as Haley Berry had with Catwoman, which I thought was just hysterical, that cracked me up. Then he says, uh, Lorna, which is Duo Damsel, or Triplicate Girl, or Mono Maid, whatever you want to call her, he says, "During uh, you asked a question, you asked, was she, were the personalities all the same, or the right, personalities different? Right. And he answers, because during the Silver Age, she was three carbon copies. But then again, most of the Legionnaires were carbon copies with different swiggles coming out of their hands. <laughs> By the 70s and 80s, she was beginning to show some differences between her two remaining selves. It was the five-year-later era that really firmed the idea that each body was a distinctive personality that would combine to form a whole. Purple Lorna was aggressive, flirtatious. Uh, the orange Lorna was timid, the shy one, whereas the white middle Lorna was the girl next door. Interesting. There you go. And then he goes as far as Roxas. He goes, it always <laughs> – in the Roxas thing, there was a canister of poison. Do you remember in the drawing? Uh, goes, vaguely, it, always, yeah. it always bothered me that the Acme poison gas dispenser was not written in interlac. That is a great mm. point. He's in the 30th century. He should not have been in English unless it's been sitting around all those years, which is pretty funny. Then we heard from Doug Van Diver, and he goes, now, is that Legion of Superheroes group image, the cover, one of the many homages to Kevin McGuire's Justice League from 1987, number one, or is the similarity not enough to qualify? Uh, I would say it is not the same. There is certainly something to be said for a bunch of characters, heads all there together, but I think it's more just a generic all the heads together than the, the Justice League. I don't feel like they were looking up. With yeah, sort of it's the angle that really makes yeah. it a, a gloss on the McGuire one. Yep, you don't have the angle looking up, and you don't have the, hey, we're a bunch of badasses, bring it on kind of thing going on. So now it's a good question, Doug, but as a, a JLI, um, I guess, expert at this point, I guess I can say without too much arrogance, uh, I would say no. 
Come on, I've dedicated, uh, what, three years of my life to this thing now? All right, Martin Gray from the Too Dangerous for Girl blog says, I wondered if Giffen and the Beer Bombs were trying to equate Roxas with the Joker. Visually, in the comics, there was a lot to emphasis on his creepy lips. There we go. That follows up uh, on the comment from Damien earlier. Yes, there was a lot of emphasis on the lips, and he was very, very Joker. Halfway between, like, Joker and halfway between Two-Face, because they did scar half of his face as well. Mm-hmm. Right. He says, I like the Firehawk costume, but not the hair color. Lorraine looks like she's advertising shampoo. The beak, <laughs> the beak nibbling her nipple looks painful. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I think you're probably the only person in the history of comics that ever uh, thought that. So, um, Then about Vixen, he goes, that purple outfit was the most boring look ever for Vixen. And it looks like uh, they took the haircut from Foxfire of the Institute of Evil in the Squadron Supreme. Insert a Squadron Supreme cast plug here as desired. Yes, you're right. There is a lot to be said for her looking like Foxfire. I, I never noticed that until you mentioned it. Good call. Then we heard from our buddy Diablo Frank from the Rolled Spine Podcast Network. Does shows like the Martian Manhunter Podcast, which is I Love Diablo, the Marsh, uh, the Marvel Superheroes uh, Podcast, and many, many, many more. And he says about Blue Devil. He goes, Blue Devil by Linda Medley is certainly okay. I appreciate the appearance of the entire supporting cast on the profile page, and the art reflects the tone of the series nicely. Um, no, you make a good point. It's, it, and that's what I was struggling. I, I just couldn't put my finger on it last time. And I think some of the comments have helped why I, why I don't love that Blue Devil piece. And he goes, did I ever release the segment of my interview with Mark Wade where he acknowledged blowing it with Blue Devil in Underworld Unleashed? I did it 20 to 30 minutes with him, and it par- uh, parsed it out maybe five of it. Oh, my gosh, Frank. I don't think I've heard that. I would love to hear Mark Wade talk about how he screwed up Blue Devil and Underworld Unleashed because he did screw up Blue Devil and Underworld Unleashed. I would love to hear that. Hmm. Mark Wade, the bootleg series. Uh, he says, <laughs> I thought Rob was overly concerned with Bron Tiger's mass, <laughs> but those are admittedly some thick-ass thighs. Michael J. White is not a lean man either. Isherwood on his own is better than he is when inking McDonald. I love this dude. Hmm. Okay. And then um, what, what we were talking about earlier with Philemon, he goes, yeah, post-crisis uh, – I'm sorry, post-infinite crisis, Blue Devil is just Hellboy. You're not wrong, Frank. <laughs> and he goes, possibly the um, – let's see. Uh, oh, we're talking about Legion. He goes, possibly the least plausible aspect of the entire period of the 5 wide uh, L Legion was the large, extremely diverse group of people would willingly wear identical, bulky, one-size-fits-all gray jackets. They look like inmates at the drabbest prison in the universe. This is like cosplaying workers at a chemical plant in Flint, Michigan. <laughs> I, I laughed hysterically at that. And then Firehawk, he goes, I am grateful that Firehawk was never a member of a proper Justice League team. She's extreme justice level at the best. Ouch! Screw you too, Frank. Wow. We're going to have words in Boston, man. Uh, it was Larry Stroman, because we talked about Larry Stroman, and you weren't familiar with him, and I struggled. I, I, I misapplied where I thought I'd seen him. It was Larry Stroman is the best-selling Afri- African-American comic book creator of all time. Now, I didn't reach, uh, look that up and validate it, but if Frank says it, I'm, I'm sort of going to trust it. He says Larry Stroman produced 8.72 issues of X-Factor before getting fired by Marvel and landing at DC for what they anticipated would be a major launch for Dark Stars. Stroman did quit three issues in and was replaced by the best of the Jim Lee clones, Travis Cherest. Now he quit and went to uh, – Larry Stroman quit and went to Image and did the Tribe series, which was very successful. So all right for Larry. All right. Uh, he follows up on the Laura Gemster talk. He says, Laura, Oh, my gosh. Why is this still going on? Because I need something to hold my interest. He says, Laura Gemster, Laura Gemster is a 
better actress and stronger screen presence than any of the official Emmanuels, including Sylvia Christel, Fight Me. Also, many of the black Emmanuel flicks were arguably thrillers, and Gempser definitely dabbled in horror. Emmanuel in America anticipated torture porn, and you know, Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals, I believe in the Emmanuel Extended Universe. (laughs) And then Gothos Mansion follows up with more (sighs) Gempser talk. I'm not an expert on Laura Gempser's entire oeuvre, just because I haven't been able to find a lot of them, but I have read that some of her movies were titled Emmanuel films in English, really weren't filmed as Emmanuel films. A.K.A. Divine Emmanuel, A.K.A. Love Camp, is one of those that I have seen. Okay, this is about who's. This is not a poor, this, a softcore porn cast. This is going to be the beginnings of Gemster Cast coming to the Firewater oh Podcast my Network. Gosh, we've we, we've uh, we, we we got there. It's sooner or later, everything leads to porn. Have you so. ever seen Laura Gemster? Uh, I have seen a lot of Emmanuel films, but I don't wish to disclose, disclose that. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, you could, there's a thing called Google. You could just look her up. You don't have to like I, actually have watched a porn film to know who, what, what she looks like. I, I'm pretty sure when her name started popping up here, I Googled all the names that showed okay. up here. Okay. Right. Let's just leave it at that. Okay. I, all right. Just <laughs> it's a beautiful woman. That's all. Most of the Emmanuels were. So yeah. Right. Actually, but she, but all Frank them, is really. right. She had great screen presence. That's absolutely true. Okay. All right. Uh, Michael – so strange. Anyway, uh, Michael Bailey from the <laughs> Fortress of Bailey Tude podcast now. Seriously, I'm the skeevy one on the show. Like you, you're not playing to type here. What's going on here? Anyway. I'm just saying I need something to focus on that's not <laughs> Legion of Superheroes or Wild Dog. Come on. All right. Fine. Uh, Michael Bailey from the Fortress of Bailey Tude podcast uh, network, also from Crisis to Crisis, Superman podcast, Infused in the Long Box, and so many more. He writes in about Dev M. Because I, I, Shag mentions that uh, Dev M blew up the moon in the five year later era. What he didn't mention was that he did so in an issue of Adventures of Superman. It was the final full chapter of the Time and Again storyline. I'm sorry, Time and Time Again, which was significant because at the time Keith Giffen was having a lot of problems with the Superman office. Because I was shocked that the destruction of the moon, which eventually leads to something even worse, was done in another book. If you weren't reading the Superman titles, it seemed like one issue of the Legion there was a moon, and the next issue you see you see the debris from the destruction. Destruction. Yeah, that was one of the weird things about that crossover. Yeah, you had to read the Superman issues involved, or you were like, "What just happened to my Legion series?" Interesting. That kind. Of, this is really random, but not any more random than Laura Gemser talk. That reminds me of, um, I think that on the Tick cartoon, okay. uh, there was an episode where Chairface Chippendale uh, carved his name in the moon. Yeah, and he only got halfway through it. Like it right. was like cha, and then like apparently in every subsequent episode, the moon had the cha in it. Yes, like, yes, which is that's fantastic. True. That's what a great <laughs> gag that is. Uh, he's Mike continues. He says, finally, Rob says that first appearances are decided by comic historians, and I had this vivid image of the Council of Twelve, a smoky, dimly lit room where figures wearing robes decide what is and is not official in terms of comic books. This will later be replaced by the internet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, Gus Cassay writes in, he says, well, I'm sorry, guys, but I've come here to complain a little. You too? He says, I fully understand and to some degree enjoy Rob's dynamic in this podcast, and I can empathize with the Legion dislike. But I feel that the Legion entry analysis suffered for it since Shag got to tell the biography brief, but there was not comment whatsoever on the image itself, even to say I don't really care about it. There are many things that deserved a little spotlight. The JLA number one homage conversation of the image, the characters acting for all characters, the character acting for all the characters, the logo placement and how it plays with the image, Bounty's gun placement and Kent's reaction and so on. Now I demand a 30-minute episode addenda just covering this entry. <laughs> this reads like one of the who's who letters. Over sure the front does. Of the- um, uh, 
Look, I, I mean, I, I take Gus's point, and yeah, I think by the time I got to like the seventh entry, I was just like, oh my god, I'm so tuned out in this. That said, when we got to one that I thought was interesting, like the Bouncing Boy, I think I was very, I think I had praise for it, or the one with um, Triple Ken Shakespeare. Yeah, Ken Shakespeare. So I think when it breaks that mold, I think I'm complimentary. But when it's, you know, like, look, Giffen's nine panel thing was to me in evidence of the Who's Who listings. Like, it's just going to, it's the same thing every, every time. And there's no variance. And just to me, after you look at so many of them, you just kind of get like, I mean, like Richard Case, he's using the same design in every listing for Doom Patrol, but he's varying the images within that design. But to me, Giffen is just like same, 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 same. And that's clearly what he's into, but it doesn't make me very interested. Now, guys, you know I dislike Rob as much as the next guy, uh, probably more than most people really. And, and I'm willing to step up and say that he did an exceptional job last time when we covered that Legion issue. It was it was a uphill climb for someone that's not a fan of the Legion, especially someone that doesn't like the five-year-later era. So I And I genuinely think he did a great job on the episode. So I, I will stand and defend my, my quote-unquote friend. So. <laughs> Thank you very much. No problem. I'm, I'm sort of there for you. All right. Then we heard from uh, Liz Ann Oswalt, who has her own YouTube channel you should check out, by the way. Liz writes uh, – <laughs> Liz writes – I got the giggles now. Uh, Liz says, not a bad image of Black Canary. I used to like her a lot until Birds of Prey had her fans putting her over Huntress. Just no, no, no. Uh, that is a cool costume, but not as much fun as when she wore the JLI costume. Thank you, Liz. Yes, the – what I call the jazzercise version of Black Canary is – uh, wonderful and should not be forgotten from JLI. I love it. So thank you for standing up for that. And then Liz also says, Viction is pretty cool, uh, though I like her better in the JLU outfit and her haircut. Totally agree. Yeah, if you're going to have that boring look, uh, the purple boring jumpsuit they had last issue of Who's Who, the, compared to like Justice League Unlimited, where, where it was still very basic, very basic, but it really worked much better there. So yeah, I would agree. I'd go with JLU instead. Then we heard from our buddy Siskoid from the Firewater Podcast Network. He does shows such as FW Team Up, the upcoming Zero Hour Strikes podcast, and much more. He says, Jeff has it right about uh, Lurono, again, dual damsels, three personalities. 5YL made it true with the SW6 Legion. All that was just in code to confuse Rob, I think. Anyway, uh, which was the basis for the reboot, where Triad's three personalities were developed further. The reboot held that most Cargolites, triplets, are identical in personality, and that Lurono's three very different attitudes were all kind of a disability. She was stigmatized for this and actually proved to be a strength, her independence. That said, the three sisters tended to fight and sometimes the aggressive personality played against the others. Three minds means that three types when it comes to Ben comes to men. And one of them did show a romantic interest in Chuck Tane, another in Monel, and another in Superboy. As for the statues, the original triplicate girl killed by Computo always had a memorial statue even back in the Silver Age. So uh, thank you, Cisco. I appreciate the explanation of that. I think Rob understood about four words of that whole thing. Yeah, I don't even I don't know what happened. You, you started talking interlac, so I just gave up. It did feel that way a little bit for a while, yeah. <laughs> it all, sadly, it all made sense to me, though. Then as far as uh, 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 Matter Eater Lad, he goes, invasion-related nitpick about Tenzel Chem. The idea that the Bismolians evolved naturally because the planet was toxic was undone in the Legion of Superheroes Volume 4, Annual Number 2, which tells the legend of Valor as the Cedar of Worlds. There, we learn that Valor liberated a bunch of metahumans from a Dominator concentration camp and relocated them to the planets where their powers would help them thrive. Bismol was one of these, and metas with matter-eating power settled there. So the powers came 
came before the planet, and this is true of many Legion-era powered races. Hmm. Very interesting. All right. Hooray for retcons. All right. Uh, Mike Dans. Uh, do we know how we say his name? Mike Dans? Um Ask Mike, and I'll get back to you. Hey, Mike, how do you say your name? He says, another great episode, guys. Who's Who is what brought me to this network, and I enjoy whenever a new episode drops. I just wanted to chime in that I finally made the plunge and bought some of the trades from InStockTrades.com because of you guys. Ding! You have both recommended so many great titles over the years. I still need that Alex Toth book. Which one, Mike? Uh, But having (laughs) said that, two of the books I got were The Legion of Superheroes, The Silver Age Omnibus, Volume 1, and Volume 2. So I apologize to Rob and High Five Shag. Anyway... (laughs) Any, I'm happy you buy anything from InStockTrades.com. No need to apologize. Yeah. Uh, he says, anyways, I thought I would bring this up due to the nature of this episode. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Mike, and thank you for uh, soliciting InStockTrades.com. They've been a loyal advertiser for what, like seven years now? Uh, something like that. Something, something like, like that. that. So yeah. no no need to apologize, Mike. I'm glad you bought something. I'm glad. I hope you enjoy it. Awesome. That's fantastic. Hope you enjoy the books. Yeah. So then uh, Tim Price wrote in about Blue Devil. Uh, he, he actually disagrees with me. Imagine that. He says, uh, this entry brings a big smile to my face. Blue Devil and the gang look so darn happy. My only thought that is, this is definitely a Linda Medley piece, not much uh, sign of Paris Collins or the influence. Blue Devil is not in a Paris Collins pose. The faces of the gang is not how Collins depicted them, and those things threw me at first, but then I realized I was thinking uh, that I was thinking that, and I appreciated the uh, entry much more. Hmm. All right. Nice. Well, there you go, Tim. All right. Uh, Jeff R. writes in, he says, that certainly is a very inexplicably German font for Hire- Firehawk. I-, I never really noticed it, but that's a good catch, Jeff. It is very kind of like Firehawk, she woke of the SS kind of thing. But uh, you know. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, he goes on to say, I first saw Hugo Strange in that Prey arc in Legends of the Dark Knight and loved the character. During the late 90s and the early aughts, there was a series of Batman stories of the form, quote, mystery villain is messing with Batman's life in a way that at least strongly implies they know he's Bruce Wayne. And each time, end quote, and each time Hugo Strange would have been a better solution than the one they went with. Instead, he didn't make the suspect suspect list. Now he was dead at the time, but it's not like other characters who were dead weren't considered. Yeah, that's a fair point. I remember a lot of those stories, and because I was reading them in the 90s, and maybe if they had actually put Hugo Strange in there, I would have had more respect for the character and not just been freaked out by the who's who entry. Uh, Joe X writes in about um, Kane from a House of Mystery. So I brought him up with House of Weirdness in Blue Devil. He goes, Kane moved over to the House of Weirdness after the House of Mystery was briefly tied to the Elvira license. I forgot about that. Yeah. (laughs) I completely forgot about that. Uh, I I remember she had a book, but I had forgotten she was the House of Mystery. It says, Bronze Tiger and Richard Dragon originally worked for G-O-O-D, which is good. Uh, one of those paid-by-the-period spy agencies <laughs> invested pop culture post-Bond. Uh, I read that entire thing there just so I could make that joke about paid-by-the-period. That was hilarious. Thank you so much, Joe. Uh, and he was, did Jerry Conway ever think about tying Lorraine Riley to Rod Riley, the Golden Age firebrand? And with that, you know, Mark, uh, Martin Gray's ears just perked up because that man loves him some firebrand, Rod Riley. Um, you know, it's interesting. I don't think he ever did. Uh, I don't know of anywhere because, you know, you, you tie Firehack even more directly to Lorraine Riley, uh, which was the, fire, the second firebrand because there's a lot of similarities there. And I don't think it ever happened. Now, certainly it's been brought up in uh, a lot of fan culture. So I've, I've definitely heard this before about Lorraine Riley and uh, Danette Riley and, and, and Rod Riley. But no, not in the comics, I don't believe. And you, you think Roy Thomas would have jumped all over that with All-Star <laughs> yeah. Squadron, right? <laughs> I'm sure at the very least Roy, Roy, Roy Thomas thought about it. Yeah, probably. 
Then we heard from Gothos Mansion, and uh, he writes in Black Canary, for me, the background of her boyfriend really takes away from the main image, which I love. Can't go wrong with Giordano pinup. Uh, the background image seems to regulate Canary to just a supporting character in Green Arrow's world, even though Canary was around for at least two decades before she and Arrow became a thing. I promise I don't just dislike Arrow being in, back there because I've always found him obnoxious, and he's the only member of the Justice League that I hate even more than Snapper Carr. Ooh. Wow! Okay, so uh, Gothos mentioned, here's my take on it. I don't feel like the picture of Green Arrow in the background overpowers her. I feel like the picture of her in the foreground is so great and so wonderful and colored in the in the in the backgrounds is, is a surf print, so it's really in the background. And even though it had been, you know, it's only been 20 years of her long storied history, he's still they're still kind of like their main squeezes for each other. I mean, that is her main you know character that she loves. So I think having him in the background is appropriate. So I think I don't think there's anything wrong with having Green Arrow in that shot. Uh, and I don't think he overpowers her. So I, I, I don't see it that way. Uh, he says, regarding Vicky Vale, um, is this a parody of an upskirt shot? Considering the weird angle and proportions, this could have been just as well have been an upskirt shot of Plastic Man, Elongated Man, or Stilt Man. <laughs> I like the idea of Stillman. He says, uh, okay, I realize we've dropped the B-movie actress conversation, but just so Rob will have something to comment on other than comments about the Legion. Oh, I'm, my God. Yeah, it's back. I'm glad to see that Frank and Rob both like Laura Gemser. A co-worker of mine likes her, too, so that means she has at least four fans. But I must chastise Rob for dismissing Laura as only Emmanuel. I first discovered Laura in the Terrence Hill Bud Spencer comedy Crime Busters, which HBO showed every other month. It aired in the months that HBO didn't show Terrence Hill's Super Fuzz. Since I grew up and went to college in rural Alabama, I haven't seen as merely, nearly as many Gemster films as I would like, but she also did Action, Ator, and The Bushido Blade, uh, and at least one horror movie, Murder Obsession. She must have done more horror films, because I recall a horror board I used to frequent had a topic, Laura Gemster hot or needs to eat a sandwich. Uh, I'm betting that board is run by all men. Um, I don't think that I said that she was only Emmanuel. I'd have to go back and listen to it, and I'm not going to. I just think I said that's all I knew her from, but I don't think I suggested that that was all that she did. But again, this is all going to make great material for Gemster cast, which is coming soon. Oh my gosh! And thanks for the magic of Google. Yeah, I've seen lots of Laura Gemster films, guys. I just don't remember any of them because I think I was in middle school at the time. So uh, <laughs> then we heard from Jossum One, which is the greatest new handle I've heard all day. Uh, Jossum One uh, writes in to say, "Hi guys! After many years away from comics, reading, and collecting, I joined DCU, meaning the uh, app." And I have been having a blast watching the shows and catching up what I missed as well as rereading some of my old faves. With that said, I did a search for something and stumbled upon your Who's Who number 8 podcast. I've never listened to any podcast before, but had such oh fun God. listening to you. I know. Imagine had starting such... the podcast with Who's Who. Who's who number eight, too? Right in the middle there. He goes, uh, but I had such fun listening to yours that I went back and binged the first seven. What fun. I laugh every time you guys said something like, if this is your first time listening, since you were talking to me. See? Oh, See all of you Jotham, you said the – oh, God. No, he he's played right into my hands. I where know. I, I know. I always say every episode, if this is your first time, and it kind of dis- – Describe the way this stuff works, and everyone bitches about it. Michael Bailey always writes every time he does his annual re-listen. He's like, "Oh, I don't." My shag always says the same stuff. See, there's a reason, guys. It, 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 I just helped Jossum one, so there you go. You're welcome, Jossum, and I love your handle so much. <laughs> okay. And we heard from a, 
Ward Hill Terry. Yes, we did. He goes, uh, he, he put a whole bunch of numbered points here. I'll just read a couple of them. It says, Shag, read the original Universal stories, especially the two-parter of the Outlaw Legion. Shag, read the Englehart, Rogers, Austin, and Simonson series of Detective Comics. This is imperative. Englehart brought Hugo Strange back from 37 years of obscurity and made him into a great character for the, ex- uh, for the extended story. And then he goes on to say, Shag. He talks about uh, people's names versus the Legion with their, their code names. And then what's bullet point four? Rob. Hi, Rob. <laughs> Hi, Warhill. I appreciate being included. There you go. Then we heard from Travis H. He says, I was fortunate enough uh, to receive issue number nine and number three of Who's Who, which was the Green, um, the Green Lantern issue, in the sealed comic book collections sent by my aunt and uncle. They purchased them at Costco with, uh, with a new set, maybe with about 20 comics a month or so, uh, coming out every month. And, and I know that it continued to receive them beyond zero hour. I don't know about these bundles. He says, DC bundles consisted of two or three Superman and Batman titles, both Star Trek series, and both Justice League titles. From there, more random titles will be included, annual specials, quarterlies, and a stray issue from a miniseries or a lower tier title, even a promotional poster on occasion. The DC bundles were usually much nicer than Marvel's. The DC titles were all from about the same month. Marvel tended to include a good mix of titles as well, but you would often find a certain issues repeated over more than, uh, more than one collection. Hmm, that is really interesting. I didn't know about these bundles, and if they included the the loose leaf who's who, that was kind of a a huge stretch for them to do that, and posters. That's really cool. Yeah, this is all news to me. Um, Tom Pandarese wrote in, uh, Gar Pal from the Pop Culture Affidavit and Country and many other shows. Uh, He was just on the network with me doing an episode of Fire and Water Water Records uh, talking about Billy Joel. He says, great job as always on this episode, even if Rob had to endure all those Legion entries. I will reserve judgment on these entries and characters until I read more of the comics. I've always been five YL curious. Oh my gosh. I love that phrase. (laughs) But aside from the occasional comic and the zero hour crossovers, have never read the entire series. You know, if you're going to start, guys, just read the first 12 issues. That's that's start there. You know, because that's that's what really, or maybe it's the first 13 issues. Either way, you don't have to. You know, jump in at issue twenty-one or something foolish like that. But um, try that, and you know, <laughs> be an idiot to do that, right? And, and have your who's who handy so you can figure out and go, who's Reap Daggle? Anyway, um, and then Tom goes on to say, "I'm glad Shag enjoys the Deathstroke Holy series as much as I do, even though I think it goes completely off the rails around zero hour." Yeah, I think it does too. I think you're right. Uh, he goes, "Yes, it was very Punisher-esque, but it was one of the most consistently." Uh, solid, straight-up action books that DC was putting out at the time. I haven't read anything featuring the characters since the New 52 started, but I really like seeing him on Arrow. Uh, you know, it's interesting, Tom. I, I, I love Dressstroke, mainly because of that era of Titans. And I drop in and out whenever he has a series. So I started with the New 52 series um, that was by Rob Liefeld. Or maybe, no, wait. No, it was by, you know, I get so confused. Either way, it either started with somebody else and became Rob Liefeld or started Rob Liefeld and became somebody else. Either way, the non-Rob Liefeld issues of Deathstroke at first in New 52 were actually very good. I really enjoyed those. And then later on during the Rebirth era, Christopher Priest comes in and did some, and those were pretty good. I appreciate what he was trying to do, and normally Christopher Priest is usually a win-win, but like – I don't know. It didn't feel very Deathstroke-y to me. It felt a little too, you know, I don't know, espionage commando-ish. Didn't quite feel Deathstroke. But either way, you know, it, there are some more some more recent stuff out there. You know what? I, I, I think you're on the DC app, so you, that's a good way to check out some of this stuff because more Deathstroke in your life is always a better thing. 
All right, folks. Now this is um, the time where we're going to go to uh, the Zooms corner. Zooms who? Zooms Yukonori's uh, addendum to the direct. I can't even say this. It's so complicated. Zooms who? Zoom Yukonori's addendum to the definitive directory of the DC universe. Woof! What a mouthful. And I have in my hand my hard copy right here, my printed copy of Zooms Who. And we're going to flip to page twelve, Rob, and we're going to talk about the incredible. I Ching, <laughs> art by Zumikin Nori, and I assume the text is written by him as well. I'm not entirely sure, but uh, so I Ching basically the, the, the short version is he is this little wizened, uh, almost Mr. Miyagi type blind character who was the mentor, the martial arts mentor to Wonder Woman during the Diana Prince New Wonder Woman era, the white pantsuit Wonder Woman era, where she loses her powers. In fact, there's a sentence here. It says, um, this was shortly after Diana Prince had relinquished her powers while the Amazons had temporarily resided in another dimension. And as I told Rob before we recorded, that's the only kind, the only place you're ever going to find that kind of sentence is in a Bronze Age DC comic. <laughs> it has no, no purpose in any other form in the English language. Anyway, uh, so I Ching was uh, – it's very complex history. And if you get your copy of Zoom Two, you'll see it. Anyway, about how, how he's part of these uh, mysterious sects and everything, he ends up with Diana Prince, though, and trains her, becomes her mentor, and they spend a lot of time together battling various foes. And in the end, he is abruptly uh, shot down by a sniper's bullet that was aimed by, if I remember right, um, Denny O'Neill, I think is who aimed that bullet, actually. Yes. Uh, who wanted to end the pants, the white pantsuit era of Wonder Woman. And so uh, the, you know, he's an exceptional martial artist, though he's blind. He has superhuman senses and things like that. So uh, Zoom has crafted this wonderful image of I Ching walking towards us. He's got his cane. He's got this nice blue jacket on. He's got a bowler hat and his glasses. And then in the background of the serpent, you see him training a smoking hot Wonder Woman. Thank you, Zoom, uh, as she's training her martial arts. And you see him with his glasses off. You can see his sort of white eyes. The, the universal symbol for a blind person is the white eye. Uh, and then you see him fighting some guys in the background, even though he's blind, and then you see Wonder Woman cradling him after he's been shot. So uh, what do you think of this one, buddy? Oh, it's great. I mean, it's nice because it's, it's an all-Zoom original. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not aping somebody else's style. Uh, I, I did think that the, the listing where it says their adventures came to an abrupt end was his little commentary on how fast the Wonder Woman changes came when a new editor came in. You know, they were like, oh, no, no, we're not doing this. So, boom, all of a sudden, Iching disappears. So, well, have, you ever, have you ever read that issue where it happens? Yes. Yeah, it is very abrupt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Real quick. I, 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 no, I thought this was a lot of fun. I, I actually like I Ching. I like those issues of Wonder Woman. I like the depowered Wonder Woman. That stuff was all pretty fun. So uh, I, I dig it. And so, yeah, Zoom manages to capture the flavor of it uh, quite well. And I like the I – don't, I don't remember. Was he called the Incredible I Ching? I don't remember the incredible part, but I'll, I'll take Zoom at his word. I was going to say, are you going to really question Zoom's eidetic memory no, on that I'm one there? Not, I'm not questioning that at all. <laughs> that way leads to madness, Rob. Yeah. Uh, you know, Frank sent me in that um, 46-pound box, uh, he sent me um, the, the the Diana Prince Wonder Woman trades. I, sh- I really need to bust those out. I flipped through them, but I don't think I read them all, so I need to, I need to finish that up. All right. Uh, this is the thank you, Zoom, for another wonderful entry. Now, this uh, this is the part of the show where we thank everyone that shared our show on their social media timeline, which means Facebook and Twitter. It's very simple, folks. You want to get on this list? All you got to do is share it on Facebook, retweet it on Twitter, and it helps spread the word. It is a big long list of names, but you know what? This is the only time we're going to mention Al Girding on this show, and yet he helped promote the Who's Who podcast and get the word out there. And this community continues to grow. We just saw Jossum just joined us, and uh, there's, there's several others that are listening to this thing for the first time, and so please help us get the word out there. So our thanks to the aforementioned Al Girding, All New Sucks, Ashford Wright, Between the Pages, Bill Beer, 
Bob at Real Tarks 9, Chris Buse, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Lydon, Chuck Rodriguez, Coffee and Comics, Craig R. McD, David A. Gutierrez, David Capoon, Dr. Ange, Dr. Pop Culture from the Bowling Green State University, Dr. G. Nerdologist, Ed Moore, Green Lantern HG, Into the Weird, Jeffrey Brown, Justice's First Dawn, Justice Trek 2019, Keechee Baker, Con L, Lee Asif, Legion of Substitute Podcasters, Legion of Super Bloggers, who just celebrated their fifth anniversary. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it's been five years. And uh, the Legion of Superheroes themselves. Lizanne Oswald, Long Box of Darkness, Lucas Garrett, Mark Hempel, Martin Gray, Matthias McBride, Max Romero, plus It's Plastic Man and The Mirror Factory, Michael Kramer, Michael O'Brien, Mike Danes, how do you say it, Mike? Patrick Holt, uh, Paul Kian, Paul Kanzel, Pietro Blaxamoff, Ruth and Darren, Ruth and Darren Sutherland, sorry about that, guys, also Rad Adventures and Trekker Talk, Relatively Geeky, Rick G, Degenerate Boy, Richard, he's a member of the Legion, Richard Field, Old Spine <laughs> Podcast, Russell Bailey, Sean Ross, all aka the Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Sean Marrick, Siskoids, Langward Scott, Super Lad Kid, Terry Ousterhout, The Voice of Paul, Tim Price, Thomas, Tomas Corsi, Warlock Thanos Podcast, What Would Cap Do, Willie Yarborough, and Zeb Oswalt. Oof. Now, did you notice Mark Hempel was on that list? I did. That was yeah, really cool. Yeah. I'm glad we said something nice about him. I love his stuff. I really do. Well, I tagged him on on Twitter when we promoted oh, that Vicky Vale oh, thing, and apparently he retweeted it. So thank you for that. Nice. I really appreciate thank that. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, awesome. So speaking of images and things like that, where can they find those, Rob? Fireandwaterpodcast.com. Awesome. Now, next issue, come back where we're going to talk about Guy Gardner and Mr. Miracle and Big Barda and Crimson Fox and General Glory. And, oh, yeah, there's some non-JLI members in there, too. <laughs> there's some non-JLI folks in there, too. Like uh, the Guardians of the Universe, Prankster, Cersei, Rainbow Man, and everybody's favorite, Terra Man. Woo! And... Oh, crap. The Wanderers are in this one again? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, well. Until next time, folks. Who's, who's next? next? Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Dittrick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Oh, man. We forgot Slipknot. Double Who Crew. I'm enjoying the new Who's Who enormously. You guys were right. Who's Who is like giant trading cards. I love it. You asked for artistic opinions, so here we go. Brian Bolland should definitely illustrate the Joker's entry. He really brings out the evil in that lunatic. As for Batman, I'm not quite sure. Bolland would be great, but there have been so many wonderful Bat artists. Jim Aparo, Norm Brayfogle, Neil Adams, Marshall Rogers. The list goes on and on for miles. Just please pick an artist who is well identified with the character and who has enhanced the Batman legend. You said we'd see a Barry Allen Flash entry, but how about one for the late Jason Todd, Robin 2? I'd say he still affects the DC Universe, especially Batman, Nightwing, and Tim Drake, Robin 3. 
And I'd like to see Nightwing in Who's Who drawn by George Perez and Robin Three by Tom Lyle or Norm Brayfogle. Will defunct teams like the Justice League of America, the Old Outsiders, or Infinity Incorporated get entries? The old JL of A certainly deserves one. I assume it is getting one since Snapper Carr was listed as a supporting cast and not a hero, as he would be with the Blasters. Eric Schaunauer or Adam Hughes would be my picks to draw the good old league. But please, make this entry serious. Well, I must dash, oh hip hoosters, but I'll be hip to your groove for all 16 Ginchy issues. Later, man, and have a gear new year. Oh, no. I think I've contracted that deadly disease. Snapper caritis. Chris Franklin, Cynthia, Kentucky.